It is the conclusion of this committee that Senator Carroll was assassinated by Thomas Richard Linder. It is our further conclusion that he acted entirely alone, motivated by a misguided sense of patriotism and a psychotic desire for public recognition. The committee wishes to emphasize that there is no evidence of any wider conspiracy. No evidence whatsoever. You are listening to PSYOP Cinema, and this episode might be our darkest one yet. Our subject matter is going to cover truly disturbing themes related to satanic violence and abuse. Joining us today to talk about his excellent investigative works on such subjects is William Ramsey. William Ramsey is an attorney, author, and researcher. His books and his documentaries cover uh, really troubling but important topics like Aleister Crowley, the West Memphis Three case, the Order of Nine Angles, the Smiley Face Killers, and Hollywood occultism, which of course is a topic very close to this show. So William, thank you so much for joining us. We're really big admirers of your work and we're excited to have you on. Is there anything that you would like to add in terms of introducing your work and background? No, I mean, I think you covered it all. I've got five books, five documentaries, over 700 hours of interviews I've done with other people and myself at William Ramsey Investigate. So I think I've, I've done a little bit of work in different types of mediums. So. Right, right. And we'll provide, uh, we'll provide a lot of links in the description so people can check out all of your stuff. But I would really like to start out uh, with a comment and then question about the big picture concerning Alistair Crowley uh, that you paint in your research. So outside of my specific focus on, uh, on Hollywood and decoding messages from films, probably my greatest research interest is the fact that we live in a particularly Crowleyan age, that Crowley was in some sense correct when he proclaimed the dawn of a new aeon, which you talk about in Children of the Beast and Prophet of Evil. And I want to start there because really all the material that we cover from your work, I think, makes more sense in light of that Crowleyan paradigm. So, you know, your Children of the Beast book painstakingly demonstrates just the massive cultural and social influence of Crowley. So just to rattle off a few of the influential figures standing in Crowley's shadow, you know, you have Alfred Kinsey, Timothy Leary, The Beatles, Jimmy Page from Zeppelin, J.K. Rowling, Ozzy Osbourne, David Bowie, Marilyn Manson, Alan Moore, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, but we don't have to get into the full story of how Crowley received his book of the law from the entity called I was in Cairo in 1904, although it's a really fascinating story in a sinister way. But what I'm hearing, what I'm interested in hearing you comment on is just how incredibly predictive Crowleyan spirituality, his religion of Thelema is for 20th and 21st century spiritual trends. I mean, the whole new age movement is by name, you know, all about the proclamation of a new age, a new era, a new aeon of humans realizing their divinity um, in a literal sense. And then that's accompanied by, you know, the breakdown of the family of national bonds of traditional religion within the Western world, and just kind of a sprinting in this cultural direction of self-affirmation and pleasure seeking and self-worship in a more mundane sense. So these are really the waters that we swim in now. So can you talk to us about how one person, Aleister Crowley, is in very large part responsible for that. Well, I mean, it goes back to his upbringing, his birth, and what he was interested in and what he wanted to do. I think he was brought up in a very rigid Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren, which is a subset of, uh, of like an extreme, they were the exclusive brethren, which is a subset of the Plymouth Brethren, which he rebelled against. And he really wanted to make his own religion. And he basically put it together through his research into the occultism, into Golden Dawn and Masonry. 
and created the Lima is a direct opposition to Christianity and Christ. So I think that he his he had the mental stamina and capacity to really formulate a new philosophy that brought from people in the past, brought from other occultism, is occultists like Eliphas Levy. But I think that it was really distilled in his Liber 77. And it comes out of a statement from Liber, uh, from the Book of the Law, which is, there is no God but man. So he really deified people. So you can see that all the way through. People, you know, do what you, do what you want, do what you feel good. So I think that philosophy comes from Crowley even after his death uh, through the 60s to the present day. So I think that even he predicted that the birth of the child, which he called the age of Horus or the Aeon of Horus, which is a cosmological age, a much longer kind of millenarian kind of change in humanity, would start in the 60s. And he was correct. And so the people who you mentioned, like Leary, really carried the torch, uh, the Promethean torch, all the way up through 9-11 and into the, the third millennium since Christ. So I think that Crowley's influence, he, a lot of people have gone through a Crowley, most occultists have gone through a Crowley phase, whether they accept or reject him. And it's distilled itself and distilled itself through strange places, rap, Jay-Z, you wouldn't even believe it. Um, some of these other people, he seeded his ideas through so many rock bands and things like that. So uh, you can say we are we are kind of in the age of Horus in some ways. Yeah, well, yeah, I just wanted to say myself, uh, thanks for for coming on the show. You're one of the uh, major inspirations for the show, next to you know Jason Horsley and and Jay Dyer, and we really admire your deep politics and and deep culture research. And we just spoke to Jason Horsley yesterday. We we talked for an hour. So oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And yeah, Thomas and I stumbled upon some of your um, you know your occult Hollywood. Um, uh, material and that's what kind of led me down my own sort of William Ramsey uh, rabbit hole um, but I don't want to sidetrack the conversation because I have a question directly uh, relevant to what you were saying um, this idea that I, I think you write or you actually you quote this English writer Clifford Bax who was um, who's associated with Crowley and he said that um, no Crowley told him excuse me that in a hundred years this is in 1904 the world will be sitting in the sunset of Crowleyanity and that made me think of a, a quote uh, that Jamie Hanshaw I think uh, used in her um, her culture creation to monarch uh, book that's Jay Dyer's uh, wife and her yeah, and her observation was that uh, Crowleyism or Thalema, I don't remember how she puts it, but it's the secret religion of the 20th century and, of course, the 21st century. And, um, yeah, that's something we definitely all see eye, uh, eye to eye on here. Um, there's a, um, it's interesting, too, to discover in your book that uh, the grand purpose behind the uh, Jack Parsons Babylon working, which a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, was, quote, to atomize Christian views and mores about sexuality and replace them with the view of the new eon, which is total permissiveness, as you write. So, yeah, I mean, isn't that that's the sexual revolution? That's, you know, that's the dissolved and coagulate agenda. Um, and contrary to the, the vulgar view that, you know, this is all about giving you freedom and, and self-expression and all of this. No, in fact, this is... Um, it's all actually deeply rooted in, in Thalamic, um, you know, I, ideas. And so I, I just want to give you a chance to kind of expatiate if you want on, uh, on this, because, you know, a perusal of U.S. pop culture from the 50s on suggests that the, the Babylon working or, or whatever has been um, a smashing success at some level, right? Absolutely. 
I mean, he did it with Hubbard. Hubbard comes through science fiction, puts together Scientology, very influential, very influential in Hollywood. Like, so I don't know how many Scientologists there are in there, but there's very notable ones in Travolta and Cruz. And uh, their whole thing was to kind of, and there's a lot of mind control in that too, which is another story. And Crowley actually kind of ties into that as well. But I do think that Parson made the oath of the Antichrist. Crowley called him his most important disciple. Uh, he ran the Church of uh, the Agape Lodge in, in Pasadena. And his ideas, uh, really, he just was kind of carrying the torch, just like Leary. So these guys were really trying to make the change. The Babylon working was something that took place, I think, over 12 days. They drove out together into the Mojave Desert and uh, did rituals and things like that. They brought along John Dee's tracing board, if I remember correctly. So they were kind of in the tradition of Crowley and Victor Newberg in present-day Algeria, Lusada. But I think that just like them, just like uh, they were they were really trying to create change in the, uh, they had a very broad view, a wide angle view of creating change in a thelemic sense in the world, I think so. And I think that people carried on from them and uh, there's, you know, you can look at the influence of Hubbard through Scientology, through so many other important cultural events and important people. Uh, Manson, for example, was clear. So Manson knew everything about Scientology, which uh, there's a lot of mind control, a lot of manipulation and things like that. And probably a lot of that stuff kind of came out of MK Ultra research and got seeded into Scientology, which is still around today, this kind of social engineering and things like that. But I do think that they kind of uh, really they're the sociological cultural changes from the 50s to the 60s were very uh, severe, I think. And I, you know, I do have a follow-up question about the uh, the influence of uh, of Thelema and the vectors of that. But since you mentioned Scientology, I can't help but throw this in. Just thinking about the way that it's you know socially acceptable or expected to you know treat Scientology as you know, a, you know crazy cult for rich people, and people are just completely aware of the insanity of the of the teachings and the corruption and all of these things. But with our culture so awash in this like. Uh, you know, SRI, MK Ultra, SLM style, like spirituality that just like that, that has so many crazy elements to it and so much of it with, you know, spiritual but not religious stuff and the neo-psychedelic movement and the new age, you know, it's just completely socially acceptable. You know, it just makes me wonder just like why it is with Scientology that, you know, it's expect the, the normal position to have is like, ah, this crazy cult, new religious movement or whatever. But that never wasn't seemed- always like that. It wasn't, people didn't know the internal workings until they were leaked. Right. So some of these really went out and leaked some of those documents. They were all copyrighted. The Xenu documents and some of those other kind of real mind control, self, self-perpetuating mind control programs they had uh, were not really known to the public, I think, until the 70s and 80s. So people have fought that battle. Sure. Very, very yeah. To get that out. Yeah, very important battle. Um, and it's really important that that happened. And I guess what interests me then is kind of the, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, I guess establishment response to that is kind of to turn, I guess, scorn towards Scientology into a little bit of a limited hangout where, you know, pe- if people look into that enough, it should open up into all this, you know, Charles Manson, the Process Church, SRI, like all this, all this, you know, goes back to Crowley. And it, it should open up this entire rabbit hole of the kind of intelligence occult 20th century complex but it usually stops at, oh, Scientology is a weird, creepy organization, and people just leave it at that. And that's oh, yeah. really odd to me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But it really starts, you can go back through Children of the Beast, 
I lay it out with his son who had to change his name. He was persecuted, who said that his dad started off with an interest in Crowley, and that he used to fondle Crowley's papers. And there's actually an audio uh, statement of Hubbard talking specifically about Crowley. He knew about Crowley as the beast. And there's this one part in the book of the law that says there shall be one who came out, comes after. All these occultists think of themselves as the one who come after, and that includes Parsons and Hubbard. Right, right. This pattern of kind of post-Crowlian occultists just being like seeing themselves as, you know, the, the Antichrist, one with Satan, the successor to Crowley, or, you know, doing the kind of Michael Aquino thing of like, you know, uh, of like, oh, Crowley was good, but I've got an even more radical rebel. You, you, you hear that all the time. Or Mayan. Or Mayan. Or Mayan. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into that when we uh, do uh, a deep dive into, into O9A in a, in a bit but, of this conversation. But... Yeah, Hubbard's son, Hubbard's son said, Hubbard didn't worship worship Satan. He was one with Satan. Right, right. Um, and that's so important, that view of being one with Satan or seeing oneself as the Antichrist. But when you're talking about Jack Parsons, it really makes me think in terms of what we're saying about the success of Thelema kind of remaking the world in a lot of ways is um, the, it makes uh, a little bit more sense in light of some of the intelligence connections around these kind of people. So, you know, Jack Parsons, having top level FBI clearance during a lot of the craziest occult stuff he was doing, or Crowley with his very documented connection throughout his career to British intelligence. And so like, I'm really interested in that specific intersection of espionage and the occult in the, in the 20th century, because these things tangibly overlap over and over again. And so then, you know, with the knowledge, uh, you know, of Crowley's massive cultural influence in mind, I think it's important that from Crowley's writings themselves, we can see the interest in influencing world events. And we can't just write that off as, you know, simple occult megalomania, although it is that, just given how important Crowley is as a cultural figure. So thinking some from passages like in Equinox of the Gods, where he talks about I was as being uh, quote, an intelligence, praetor human, and articulate, purposefully interfering in the philosophy, religion, ethics, economics, and politics of the planet, end quote, or in Crowley's Confessions, where he says, quote, the secret chiefs had informed me that a new aeon implied the breaking up of the civilization existing at the time. Obviously, to change the magical formula of the planet is to change all moral sanctions, and the result is bound to appear disastrous, end quote. So, you know, Crowley sees himself and his followers as working for the secret chiefs, these supernatural powers, to break up civilization, to usher in this new spiritual era. So yeah, I'm interested in hearing you talk about that aspect of Thelema, the desire to remake civilization, politics, economics, and maybe you can comment on how that all relates to the, the uh, you know, the very, you know, um, the very infamous usage of the phrase new world order by some recent politicians. Right. But I mean, that's the whole thing is that people look at Crowley as kind of, well, they use terms like dabbler or uh, occultist or strange guy they don't understand his philosophy or how intelligent well written and, and his frame of reference how broad his frame of reference was because he talked about the political application of Thelema and I include that in Prophet of Evil I talk about how he had his own ideas he his belief was the ideal system was a neo well it'd be a feudal system right and so uh, and freedom would be the banner, would be this rallying cry of freedom. So he was a totally anti-Christian and he wanted that applied. And I think that that's really what his background was. He was an elitist. He never really worked a job his, his entire life from a very stratified uh, class system in late 19th century Victorian England. So I think that was just his that was really his grounding and his sensibility is that he never had to work. So he always, and that's one thing people don't 
when you get into Crowley, you realize he dedicated most of his living life to occultism, at least 50 years of his life. So that's why he had such a intent, like a very encyclopedic corpus of books that he put out. But like you're saying, he believed in the political application of these ideas. The slave shall serve, the cow shall eat in the pasture. We will use them for their hide and their meat and give them the quiet wisdom of the cattle. That was really his uh, view. I included that in, in my first book, Prophet of Evil, which I published in 2010. And then you can kind of see some of these same attitudes. It's not obvious that all these people are occultists. I can tell that the Bush family is totally into the occult and, and masonry. They're attached to the book of the, uh, the house of the temple in DC. And they've said all kinds of occult stuff. Uh, with 11s, Bush's influence, and I include this in children, his influence, like you mentioned, the New World Order, his influential New World Order speech was 1990, September 11th, 1990, right? And 11 years to the day of that speech, uh, September 11th happened. I, some people can say that's just a random correlation, but I think if you have kind of a, a parapolitical sensibility, it's probably not a mistake at all. So that's the, that's the kind of application of these uh, bulimic kind of political application of the satanic philosophy. And you can go through the, the, the Bush people are their own entity, but they really are friends for the Rockefeller family. They're very tied into these old moneyed families. And you can get into that. You can go to the Rockefeller Center and see the gilded Prometheus the symbol of Satan bringing light to the people, the Titan. Um, and the Rockefeller family, very much David and, and uh, it's David and Nelson were very much involved in the building of the World Trade Center. So you can, and we can go through the 11s. I've gone through it many, 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 many times. It's all included in my first book, Prophet of Evil. But you can see these numbers. Crow, uh, Crowley, for people who haven't heard my stuff, Crowley's kind of primary number was number. The, it was 11, the number of magic, the number of the New World Order. So... Um, or his uh, new Aeon. So you can see, I think, if you look past the public propaganda of the event of 9-11, you can see this kind of similar ideology. Though it's not overt to, it's a similar ideology to political application of Crowley's ideology of 9-11, in my opinion. You know, yeah, William, your, your command of the Thalamic system is one of the things that impresses me through, through your works, too. And I'm, I know you were, a, you were a D.C. lawyer, as I understand, at one point. You're I studied criminal. in D.C. for three years. I was studied law in D.C. for three years. That's right. I didn't practice there. I knew after I worked on the um, Vince Foster case and kind of as a, uh, you know, an employee uh, for one of the lawyers there, I, I knew I was going to get out of there probably within a year and a half. I was very naive. And I, I walked into a place where there are people dying all the time and getting killed. So I knew I was out of fairly soon. Vince Foster was probably off on his lunch break and just dumped in the park. And then, there, you know, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, an enforcement mechanism. Like, are you going to go with the cover story or are you going to complain? Because most people went along with that story for their own political and personal benefit. And the, yeah, and the Clinton death list uh, grows and grows. Um, but so what, so, I mean, I guess two associated questions. I mean, one, what sort of, you know, clued you in to all of these uh, deep politics themes that you explore? And two, where, where did you discover that you had sort of such a knack for numerology and sort of hacking into the, uh, th the thelemite mind? Well, I, I think that 
it comes from that time. I was in DC from 95 to 98. I worked as a lawyer from 98 to probably 2005 or six. I was a transaction lawyer, but I, once I got out of DC, my whole uh, view, parallax view, so to speak, changed. I definitely changed my position because I realized how much propaganda was out there. I was not aware of that. I was just a good little student. I, I did what I was told in uh, college, graduate school. But then I saw there's a lot more going on. A lot of this history is fake. And I really had to start studying and really go back and relearn uh, really the truth. So I was constantly kind of keying in and researching. The internet was just kind of coming alive in the mid 90s. So I, I was following actually these sites that were coming on and telling an alternate, really the beginning of the alternate media, something I never thought I'd be involved in in any way, shape or form. But I was following, there was a guy, he's still around today. His name is Mike Rivero, but he had this interesting website called Rancho Runamucca, where he's covering the Vince Foster case, the actual real facts. And he was actually persecuted. I think he had to leave Los Angeles. He lost, he had to leave his job and go to Hawaii. Uh, but it was very interesting to kind of see fellow travelers and some of whom I've read today and I've actually interviewed on my podcast. His name is DC Dave. You can look him up. They're both written a lot about Foster. He went to Davidson with DC Dave went to Davidson, the college that Foster graduated from. So anyway, so that's really the beginning. And a lot of things happened to me in DC. Like I saw the, um, the police state and how, not parapolitical, I would be the espionage and how it really intense it is there. People are garnering information. There's all kinds of uh, weird things going on. There was, I lived in Northern Virginia and I lived with the guy who was involved of all places. He had moved to DC and he, wa he was involved in the Franklin scandal. And I lived around this and people knew him and I'm like, why is he in DC? Well, I, you know, the, I, what I've deduced is that he's there for protection like he got done with that scandal and came to dc and got a job i think he was selling cars but it also showed me like why isn't this guy in jail um anyway so you kind of keyed into all these stories people talk there differently they have a lot of contempt for the um the rubes the flyovers the provincials that's their perception that people who live out of dc are, are provincials so all those things kind of they kind of stew in your brain you realize that a lot of, I mean, a lot of the corporate media is a total joke. It's total propaganda. So once you realize that, then you have to kind of find out what's really going on. I remember I went to visit a friend in Northern DC and I sat outside the house of the temple. The house of the temple is this ornate Egyptian themed building that somebody put millions and millions and millions of dollars in. It has to be like $50 million. Never showed on TV. Never, nobody really even knows about it has the two sphinxes in it didn't know what they represented i don't know i'm not a mason i'm not involved in any occult organization so just sitting there and wonder and kind of like wow this is really different i had people close to me work for politicians i've been in many of the house of representative office buildings i delivered what was known as the clark addendum to all the senator of senatorial offices and the house of representative offices which ended up being an addendum attached to the Star Report. So very important. So Kenneth Starr's still around. I think he represented Epstein in 2007 or eight, but I delivered that stuff. And actually the, the primary researcher for Starr at that time was Brett Kavanaugh. And if you wanna have a bad day, 
not a few, not a lot of people will take the time to do this, but read through the footnotes of that what, what Brett Kavanaugh put in to the footnotes. You probably find out one of the reasons why the Clinton machine went after him with vigor. So there's a lot of things that are not published, not emphasized by the corporate media. So I really wanted to kind of find out is that what's the real American underground. Moved back to San Francisco. I worked. I mean, I used to walk by the uh, Bohemian Club, not the Bohemian Grove, the Bohemian Club. I, used to, you know, I was, I was in the orbit of kind of like the San Francisco elite, the Italians, the Italian Catholics, um, during that time when I was in my late twenties. But I used to, you know, this there's this older people talk about the Grove. They don't know there's a club. They they talk about the Grove. They don't know there's a club in in San Francisco. I think it's on Taylor. Taylor and Sutter, this corner. Very nice. Very much looks like the, when you go into the Bohemian Club, it looks like the end scene of uh, Good Shepherd, the one that's about skull and bones. That's a whole nother story. Anyway, so these are all little kind of indicators into my worldview, trying to figure out things going on. 2001 happens. I believe the real story, the story that was put out on the media, 2003, 2004, start researching, realize the cover story is baloney. I'm following a lot of these researchers. The main one of the researchers who I came across was a guy by the name of Captain May, who uh, was an actual military captain. Captain, he's passed away. Um, he wrote, wrote a lot of stuff. It was called Death uh, Ghost Troop. So he's kind of like communicating among the military. But he came across. There's one article that was influential to me because he noticed the pattern of the 11s. So I didn't know anything about the occult, but I saw that and I was like, you know, you're right. There is an overt pattern. Why is this 11 here? What's the significance of this number? And it slowly kind of revealed to me, just going through the common culture, seeing these connections. I was in like a weird place in uh, Los Angeles and some guy walked by me with a shirt that said 93, 93, 93. And I didn't know what it meant, I, but I knew that 93 was one of the planes. And I've, these, these numbers were starting to core, like uh, coalesce or congeal in my brain. So I started to research and then you know, eventually I came to Crowley and then I really had to look into Crowley, like who really was Crowley? Not what his admirers said, not what the people who use this term dabbling in the occult said. Uh, luckily, the internet was there. I could go to the core documents. I did read a lot of the biographies, Sutin, Kaczynski, who's an occultist. Um, <clears throat> but I really read the, the, the documents. I read the book of the law and, and then everything was pretty clear. Like the 11s were everywhere. Do what thou wilt is an 11, 11 syllables, 11 words. And uh, so my knowledge of numerology is not something that was pre, uh, you know, wasn't pre-set in my mind. I learned it from reading Crowley. And so then you can kind of go through all the occult numerology in the 9-11 event. And actually some of these 9-11 event, there's other uh, buildings, things that all kind of have the 11. We can go into Harry Potter, 2001. It's obviously, it's in Arthur C. Clarke's book. It's obviously some, some number that's important to the elite. And then you have to go, well, why? The next step in the analysis is why is that number important to the elite? And then you go, okay, so certain part of the elite is a cult. So then the, the elite is the elite because they believe in this feudal view, the slave shall serve. And then you realize Crowley's religion is a perfect fit for many elite people around the world, justifies their worldview and their actions. So that would say, so my uh, ideas of numerology, I wouldn't know, like I've never done gematria, like I just followed 
what Crowley did in his own writing. So that's how I know what Agape and Thelema add up to in English Gematria, which is 93. So that's kind of like the long arm. And, and if, if to continue that story, so then I put out Prophet of Evil, I printed it out. My first books were like in ring binders. I tried to sell it around and people gave me terrible deals. And I realized, you know, I just want to have control over this. It's more important than anything. And a lot of people, this is the book is so obscure. People wouldn't believe it anyway. So I kind of put it out. I went to Christian radio and you can go back through all these Christian shows in 2010, 2011. I was on a lot of Christian shows talking about this book. God bless him for allowing me on there. I was a nobody. And so then I was going to write Children of the Beast in the process of writing Children of the Beast. I ran into the West Memphis Three, their you know, attraction to Crowley. So I'd, I was really primed to look into the West Memphis Three, whether I liked it or not. I had no idea how much Crowley was involved in that whole event or occultism. But once I started reeling, it was really just unfolded to me. It was obvious. So then I, that was Abomination 2012. I think it stood the test of time. It's still a good read. Still, I think it's the nail on the head for what happened in that event. And it's accessible. It's really just kind of like my legal mind putting everything in times and dates so people can understand. Then I wrote Children of the Beast was published 2014. Then I put out my first Smiley Face Killers documentary 2017. And then I think I put out five documentaries after that, three or four documentaries after that. I had done a cult Hollywood and Prophet of Evil, two really shoddy, absolute rookie documentaries in like 2010 and 2011 but my cult uh hollywood i should put it up just to see how that is i redid that called it a cult hollywood volume two then i did a children of the beast documentary two smiley face killers documentary prophet of evil documentary then i just put out global death cult and then i kind of like at that same time to promote my books I was doing interviews and interviewing people. I worked for Ed Opperman for three years. I didn't realize how long I, I, my association for that, what Ed Opperman was, because I think back in 2013, I did a show with him and Dave McGowan. So I was friends with Dave while he was still alive, you know, Facebook friends. I went to his signing at Book Soup for uh, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. I have a signed copy of that book. So I knew Dave, unfortunately, you know, before he passed away. Um, but... I worked for Ed for three years. I kind of learned a lot from him as a producer. Uh, he was great. He kind of part. I kind of got 2020. I was like, how can you support these guys who are writing? This is totally non-productive. He thought it was okay. Anyway, so that kind of ended to me ending my relationship with him. And then I put, a Global Death Cult came out. And so that's it. So then really I've done all these interviews that I've done on other shows and interviews of people I've interviewed is about 700 25 episodes right now on William Ramsey Investigate. So that's pretty much the long arc of my public writing, documentary, and podcast career. Yeah, that's fantastic. That'll be really helpful as a framework for as we kind of move through some of these different uh, topics of discussion that you that you just mentioned and contextualize there. Uh, before I say something else about Crowley, I just have to say, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, you mentioned earlier, I was looking today at some um, articles that are coming out about some facts about his would-be assassin recently and um, and how his would-be assassin 
uh, was uh, a self is a self described sissy slave uh, who was you know on into all this super kinky weird uh, you know sissy slave like BDSM stuff online. Uh, you know, identified he identified as a, a trans woman named Sophie. Talked about was asking on Reddit about how to uh, take out high value targets like Kavanaugh and just really weird stuff like that. And then was like his, advocating for using abortion to end the human race. So that's the person who was trying to take out Kavanaugh just recently. I think that's pretty telling. I think so. That would be like Crowley's perfect uh, personality in the age of Horus is this kind of non-gendered sexual um, kinky sexual, you know, kinked out person. That would be Crowley too. So. Absolutely. And, you know, even if the most you know, extreme speculations about the extent of Crowley's personal evil, like aren't true, you know, just by any account, you know, he lived this absolutely disgusting life, you know, that goes just so far beyond the bad boy rock star image that his supporters like to paint of him. And it's really staggering to me just how many mainstream people within the kind of, you know, alt spirituality world still, you know, defend Crowley. Um, you know, but, you know, he was, uh, you know, but obviously he was a gross and pathetic man in a lot of ways, despite being such a powerhouse in others in really harmful ways. But that said, like, I'm wondering how strong do you think the evidence is for like the very worst, the idea that Crowley personally did literally engage in actual sexual violence or even acts of ritual murder, you know, involving children. I mean, we know at the very least he graphically fantasized about those kind of things and some really vomit inducing passages, but what's your assessment of the probability that Crowley actualized those kind of fantasies? Well, he writes about it, but one of the uh, incorrect views of Crowley is that he only wrote about child sacrifice and magic and theory practice you know, one thing about the eight-year-old children. That's not true. He also included it in The World's Tragedy and in Lieber 66. So there, I've done a, you can read Crowley and Human Sacrifice on my website in the kind of article section. So he interspersed it through a lot of his writings that are known as public writings. Not all the OTO materials should be assumed to be public at this point, uh, but he talked about it. We know that there are people who were at the Abbey of Thelema where he brought goats out and tried to have it copulate with his paramour at the time um, and then slit its throat. We know that he thought his body fluids were sacred. So the cakes of light, if you're doing it right, involved human body fluids. So he thought a lot of this stuff, you know, uh, was acceptable. And uh, also, he writes about in the Magical Record of the Beast, this is something Jason Norsley came across, was that he wrote about uh, ba you know, pedovorb, uh, baby incest, stuff, really horrible stuff. So uh, that's his writing. That's what he, like in his Magical Record, that's what he wrote about. So whether he believed in human sacrifice, I think that he wrote about it, but whether how much he practiced it is another matter. There's other hints to it. He has weird pictures of people sleeping uh, and he traveled around a lot. So there were allegations that he was actually doing that or the sacrifice of a cat at the Abbey of Thelema. We do know he used to like kill birds and stuff like that at the very beginning of his career. He was killing animals. So the evidence for uh, an actual baby disappearing, there was allegations of that at the Abbey of Thelema. But he's definitely wrote about it. So uh, I don't. I don't think anybody's had any provable, um, provable facts about that. 
Right, right. It's certainly not not provable per se, but just even the fact that uh, a man who would write those kind of things at all for any reason in any context has had anywhere near like the level of, of social and cultural and historical influence as Crowley. It's just staggering and really terrifying. And, you know, one, uh, um, I guess one last major question I have for you about Crowley, and then we've got a lot of other topics to move on to, is, uh, is um, just the way that Crowley, you know, related to the idea of, you know, being satanic, being Satan's, you know, chief of staff, as you know, he said at one point, just because with a lot of occultists, you kind of get the sense that they are, you know, they're, they're in some way knowingly interacting with what they consider to be demonic entities, but they've got a very distorted view of, you know, of, of reality of, you know, they, that they really, you know, are trying to replace the kind of Christian framework, Christ and Satan, good and evil with something more blurry and, you know, Gnostic or pagan or something like that. But, you know, Crowley, you know, you know, like really is kind of the worst in, in as much as he, is worse than that in as much as he you know, is saying that he never really rejected the, you know, the theology of his upbringing when he's like talking back about the Plymouth Brethren, you know, he said that he, you know, accepted it and just decides, you know, that he wants to take Satan's side and he can't, you know, against Christ. And he doesn't even be able to, he's not even able to imagine, you know, simply being a worshiper of Satan. He has to be, you know, the ultimate servant of Satan. And, you know, then later he, you know, he talks about, yeah, I was the guy who gave me the book of the law. I consider that to be, that's Lucifer, that's Satan, that's the devil, he uses all these terms. So, you know, do you think that there's a sense in which Crowley is unique, even among like left-hand path occultists in terms of really having a sense of, you know, of good and evil and Satan and Christ and choosing the side of Satan self-consciously? I think that he is unusual because of his uh, literary bent, his capacity to express himself and his intelligence. Like that's what sets him apart. And the fact that he really kind of wanted to be an, a teacher and, uh, was really kind of like I mean even at the end of his life he was writing magic without tears he was still telling people you know how to do it uh, having people come to his place in Hastings so I think that that's really what sets Crowley apart and that's why he's still he's in the kind of a cult pantheon that's why he's there with with the other ones you know that uh, that he really left a, a repository of stuff whether it's the AA the stuff he stole from the Golden Dawn what, what he put into the OO, the book of the law, all that stuff. So um, I think that, that, I think that you have to kind of penetrate Crowley's ideology to really get at the core. People never really had the chance to look through all of his writings until the internet, really, I think, because they were interspersed in pamphlets, small things. So, and I think he probably knew that at the time. He was just selling these books as little pieces, but he knew all the pieces of the puzzle. And I don't think, uh, I don't think really only until modern technology and communications could anybody really look through that and see the commonalities and some, like Lieber 66, that was probably something that he, a pamphlet that he handed out to his followers that nobody could ever see, right? But then even a researcher like me could, I can type up Lieber 66 and have a pop up and go, okay, there's another reference to, to Trout Sacrifice. It says like uh, the blood shall cover the altar as of wine, you know, uh, in Libra 66. So I think that Crow, I think if your question is like, why is he the one that people know that he's Lucifer? It's not really, it's, I don't think it's obvious. I don't think, it, you know, people think he's a dabbler or whatever, but once you really get into it, you see that the magic with a K really is kind of like the religion of, of Satan. And that's really what Crowley was really kind of pushing forward was this kind of magical practice in a 
what would you say the uh, a more scholarly fashion yeah yeah i'm interesting to hear that he's regarded as a dabbler i, I assume those are older viewpoints because to be fair to the kind of normie perspective evolving normie perspective on crowley because of factors like you just mentioned the you know archival availability of his works and so forth you know it's I, it's, I think, almost universally acknowledged now, like in <clears throat> so-called Western esotericism studies, for example, which is a kind of, a, it's a subfield that exists in religious studies. Um, Crowley is regarded as kind of the paradigm setter for, you know, 20th century occultism, which is basically, you know, the, the correct view, even if they, they try to play down, you know, some of the uh, deep politics sort of aspects of it that we explore. But, you know, from the perspective of PSYOP cinema, we do here, you know, it's like Crowley's, or for me personally, you know, it's like Crowley's connections to Hollywood. They're interesting. And in uh, Children of the Beast, of course, you, you explore that, um, I think, in, in sort of essential outline. And you, you show the alpha beta channels of how this, how this worked. And um, this figure of Charles Kamel, who is something of a I don't know, he was a sort of gentlemanly, uh, well-off figure uh, in, in Britain, and he was an acquaintance of Crowley, ends up writing like an admiring biography of him. Uh, but most importantly for us is he's the, he's the father of Donald uh, Kamel, uh, who, is, who plays Osiris and Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising. And Kenneth Anger is, is like the alpha channel of, of Crowleyism. I mean, you know, Parsons and people like that, but if you want to get right into Hollywood, it's, it's Kenneth Anger who's got one foot in 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 uh, Thalema and and that philosophy and his other foot uh, in in Hollywood even though he's a somewhat obscure figure his his influence is, is completely off the charge I mean even before I got into any of this stuff I had I had heard of him just as a film buff and I, I really couldn't sit through any of the stuff it was terrible um, and, and very dated I, I guess I really don't understand the fixation but anyway so so Donald plays Osiris and Donald is. Uh, himself very much immersed in in Anger's philosophy and um, and Crowley's philosophy and his his occult paradigm um, and Kamel goes on to make two interesting movies. I had not seen those until I watched um, one of your documentaries. I can't remember which one it was, but you um, I don't know if you yeah I think you go into Demon Seed and you also do White of the Eye. I never I definitely never right. heard of White of the Eye. I'll go ahead, William. Yeah, sorry. No, in performance, I mean, probably that's in the in the British film industry. That's one of the most uh, hundred most important British films ever made. They're considered very important. And his uh, Fox's son, the lead guy, is around today, Lawrence Fox. So, but the, you know, the real, real there's a really strange thing about Donald Campbell. He wasn't just an admirer of Crowley. He sat on Crowley's knee, and Crowley used to do astrological charts for him because when Crowley was hanging out with his dad in Northern Scotland or Scotland. Um, Donald Campbell was there. So, and Campbell was around, his best friends with Marlon Brando, uh, friends with the Stones. And I would say performance is probably the Eyes Wide Shut before Eyes Wide Shut was made. There's all kinds of stuff that was taken out. It was re-edited like four or five times. People were horrified by it. It has all kinds of occult references, references to Borges, to the assassins, um, occultism in general. It's really something else. But Why Did the Eye and uh, Demon Seater is kind of lesser known films, yeah. He wasn't very successful. He was a little bit too, he didn't, uh, he wasn't flexible enough for the studio system. He seemed to really butt heads every time he made a movie. He really wanted his own independence. And I think that kind of ground him down. So he committed suicide, yeah. 
yeah, I know we're going to talk about Parallax for you later, but it'd be great, you know, sometime in the future to have you come on and talk about one or both of those. Because I do want to ask just one question, though. What um, stood out to me about, I mean, I took Demon Seed as uh, Camel's, um, like, it was like his uh, marriage of Crowleyism with transhumanism, or maybe that was just something he was extracting out of it. I'm not sure, but there's this, and I'm not sure if there's a movie made before this where you have this, the AI robotic takeover thing crossed with Satanism. I mean, I guess you can go back to Metropolis if you want to, but um, it seems really explicit in this, in this movie. And I don't, I mean, we don't have time to analyze the whole thing, but just that aspect of it, I found very interesting. I don't know if you had any thoughts on, on what the whole transhumanist thing might have to do with Camel and, and Crowley. Well, it's just like the, what is it, homon, homunculus or whatever. You're creating this new entity, magical entity. And that's kind of what happened in that whole thing was this, this uh, computer creates a new being. The scales come off, right? And then she falls in love with it, right? If I remember correctly. I don't remember how it ends. But uh, what was the name of the actress in that? She was very popular. Julie, yeah, Julie, yeah, Julie Christie. Julie Christie, yeah. So she was, I think, at the kind of height of her career. But yeah, I thought we'd consider it within the transhumanist genre for sure. Yeah. So anyway, uh, moving on, I, I wanted to spend some time talking about your book, uh, Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception, the West Memphis Three Murders. Um, I, I've kind of, I discovered your work through sort of two different streams. I mean, one of them I mentioned, the other one was, was this case because I'd heard of you and I think Thomas and I had watched, you know, one of your occult uh, Hollywood documentaries. And I happened to be watching that uh, Netflix show that came out a few years ago uh, by Duncan Trussell, that uh, kind of goofy um, psychedelic comedian who's on Joe Rogan a lot called The Midnight Gospel. And it, we were watching several episodes and one of them had Damien Eccles on it. And I knew Damien because I had watched all three of those Paradise Lost documentaries. I mean, I went back to the original uh, one when I didn't think many people had seen it. I guess a lot of people did, but um, and but watching that documentary, you know, Eccles was very much advertising his devotion to Crowley and magic with a K and, um, and something sort of clicked because, I mean, I wasn't taken so in by the doctor. I mean, a lot of people will say, and maybe you've even said that like, well, they were portrayed as just, uh, uh, kids that like Metallica and, and maybe very lightly dabbled in this stuff, but just like any kind of kid, yeah, there was a, I guess I never took it that way exactly, but to see that he was all along that he was so doing, I mean, it, it really set something off in me and made me think, you know, either uh, uh, there's some strange coincidence that made him really deeply devoted to this stuff, or maybe he was all along and having, <laughs> having learned enough about familiar very very much so by the time of the murders by the time he was 18 he's asked on the stand by the prosecutor price i think it was his name you know the name alistair crowley yeah he thought he was a god is his response on the stand so you can read this in the court transcripts and then he says so you've you've uh, looked into the cult and and eccles responded i know everything about the occult i don't remember if that's verbatim but he said something to that effect y yeah yeah yeah, he claimed to have the full the full download, you know. But yes, exactly. So he lied, and it turns out that he was lying all along. And so the other thing that goes through my head is like maybe this person is really psychopathic, and that's exactly the sort of person who commits crimes. In fact, when the police asked, as you, you write in the book, I mean, when the police asked him to speculate about who he think 
uh, did it. He, he created his own profile, essentially, of, um, you know, of, of himself. So I know. So this case was just really uh, just one that was really fascinating to me going back through different phases of my own life. And then I I started to look into if anybody had revisited this case, because after the third film came out, there seemed to be some kind of, you know, normie consensus reality consensus that they were just definitely railroaded, that they definitely didn't commit it. And yet, going coming away from the first film, I mean, I thought that yeah, there there was issues procedurally, but I wasn't totally convinced that Eccles hadn't you know done it. The second, the third films just really ram it down your throat even more so, um, yeah. you know, than the first one. Um, Agreed. I mean, yeah. the first one I think was a little bit more objective, and the second, the ter- the second and the third were much more. I wouldn't call them documentaries, but they were much more involved in in pointing away from. Uh, the people who were found guilty in court in 1994. Yeah, and I'm going to actually that... credit or discredit those films as really the what galvanized the public into thinking that they were they were not involved. Yeah, and one of the I I, I wanted to ask you like it's strange when you watch those movies. So you're right. The sec the first film hints at it, and then the second they go full bore against buyers against. Right who's had some mental problems, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, you discovered that he's actually was collaborating with the filmmakers and he's you can tell paid. he was, yeah, he was doing a lot of acting. And then, but then in the, by the third film, even though he was accused himself in the first two, I've never heard anybody comment on this. He's accused himself in two films. And then all of a sudden he's on board and he's accusing another parent of, of doing it. And then other, it just, what was going on with some of the parents flipping around on this and, and him, it was, I, I, did you find out anything about this? That's one of the great mysteries is why are the parents flipping around? Why are they blaming each other? Why is Hobbs's wife blaming him? Uh, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of just uh, confusion involved in the analysis of that whole case. And you can look at part two and three or the second document and the third, if I remember correctly, Eccles and Baldwin point the finger at Byers. And then the third one, they're pointing the finger at Hobbs, which should tell a rational thinking person a lot. But um, yeah, so I think they even said, like, I'm 100% positive that it's Byers. But it is one of the strangest parts of the whole case is that really it's, it's present. These films are presented as documentaries when, in fact, people were getting paid. People were signing contracts. There was a bunch of money behind the scenes. There was a lot of uh, close, personal, subjective involvement by the filmmakers, is my understanding. Berlinger and Sanofsky's passed away. But Berlinger, even today, when they were going up for the supposed DNA retest of this this whole kind of public display, Berlinger's there, you know, with Eccles and Johnny Depp. This is 2021, 2022. I think it was 2022. So what's what's this filmmaker doing with these guys? Like he's more part of their group or posse or entourage than an objective documentarian. So there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems with the West of Memphis too, with Amy Berg. So, but once you kind of bore into the court records, the actual records, which are available, Callahan 8K, there was interest first around the internet. You can see what the police were seeing at that time, what actually happened, what the confessions of Jesse, Miss Kelly were, the multiple confessions, the statements of all these people, what happened in court, what happened at trial, and Jesse's, uh, the five, uh, exhibit 500, and just so many statements. It just was uh, 
to me, the, the, the evidence is overwhelming that they were found guilty. They remained guilty in 1994, and they pled guilty again in 2011. Now, guilty, it's this kind of non, maybe non-legal people is a word that's just bandied about, but it's actually a specific term of a finding in court. So they were found guilty. So you can say you think they're innocent. Well, they're not innocent because they were found guilty. It was an Maybe Alford, Alford plea, right? right? That's the yeah, that's the Supreme Court case that allows you to plead guilty and publicly proclaim your innocence. Now they signed on the on the dotted line with the best available lawyers they could have. Great appellate lawyer, very well respected one in Dennis Reardon, uh, well, Lisa Eccles. They signed on the dotted line that there's enough evidence to to convict them for first degree murder. So a lot of this stuff, this performative stuff that's happening today, they've already signed away a lot of their rights. I think they signed them away in those documents to sue the state of Arkansas for anything. So I, I mean, I, I hate to to engage in you know unnecessary speculation, but it's kind of, it, you're kind of uh, inevitably drawn to it when you start to unravel the, the lies uh, around this case. And one of the details that stuck out to me in the book was how, I, I mean, you were just, you're, you're, you have just a lot of raw, you know, court transcripts and affidavits and police records and things. And one of them was, yeah. And one of them was, uh, you know, prosecutor Fogelman, telling uh, Buddy Lewis, this guy who gave evidence, evidence against Jesse Miss Kelly, that he's perplexed by how many people are changing their stories. He says he's never encountered this before in his career on this kind of scale. And, uh, you know, your thesis is that there's a deliberate uh, disinfo campaign. And you, you do show that Miss Kelly, for example, who supposedly had this low IQ, but it was probably malingering on the, on the test, um, you know, he later admitted that he was trying to um, to trick police and, and to plant, you know, contradictory information. And I'm I'm just wondering the kind of what, what could be the what's going on here? Like, what do you think? Uh, we know that Eccles was in a coven, right? We know that it seems to have been part of some kind of network. Um, and then it gets kind of fuzzy, you know, after after that, kind of like in the Son of Sam case, when you look at um uh, you know, Berkowitz and stuff, although you, you, there are some, some more darker sort of, you know, through process church, but where do you think this goes? What sort of network do you think that the, he was plugged into if, if indeed it was anything more than just kind of a local uh, psychotic satanic um, crime? Well, there's statements, there's statements, statements like by Ricky Clymer, you can look that up. He says that he didn't want to implicate anybody else. They seem to have wanted to focus on Eccles and Baldwin for some reason. So it wasn't just Miss Kelly singling them out, um, but they're clearly are referencing a guy named Lucifer who's never identified. Uh, so they were they were probably part of a larger group, and there were actual parts within the court, not the court, but the police documents that had lists of like potential cult members or people who were involved in this stuff. And there's so many different stories, and you can read the Climber uh, statement, you can read the Buddy uh, Alvis Clem Bly statement. Uh, those are all kind of uh, explaining what they were doing. They had some kind of satanic book. They were doing getting stuff. There was a black briefcase, really dark, very dark stuff. One of the elements that hasn't really been shown by other, there's been important people who have ignored certain parts of this case, and I won't name their names, but I think they've done a, a lousy job. They overlooked the fact that Eccles is admitted to being a thelemite, right? We talked about Crowley. And in the OTO manual literature, this is a national publication for the Ordo Templi Orientis, 
There's an article, I think it's from the November 1st, 2007. The title of the article is SK 931, and that is Eccles jail tag. That's his number, right? SK 931, where they go in, and he admits to them that he is a Thelemite, which is a specific term to the OTO. He's a Thelemite. He's reading books. He's donating books to the Arkansas uh, OTO Oasis or whatever. So he was on board at least in 2007 before they got out at 2011. So he knew about he knew about that. And he's made admissions even his other books, uh, High Magic and stuff like that, about other um, occultists and people that he knows. So he was networked. There's a picture of him without, once he got out with the Genesis P. Orge, who's a huge occultist. And like, so he's he knows at least some of these guys. Uh, so that's not fuzzy at all. That's not fuzzy. Uh, maybe just some of the other research is fuzzy, but there's all kinds of contacts between him and it. Him and Depp and Manson and Peter Jackson and uh, Sigils and Theban Alphabet, the witch's language, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the the most compelling part of the book uh, to me, actually, that was, and the most shocking that I was, there's there's real evidence that that Damian Eccles was at, at least when he was being held for trial was possessed. Um, right. I, you know, he's I, reading those journal articles. I, I wish we had time uh, to read some of that to the audience. I would just tell them to go, if they can handle it, to go look at some of this stuff this, The where he claims to be possessed by this entity called Rosie. He's having these messianic, apocalyptic fantasies um, that are just, um, having grown up in the era too, I can see how he was sort of absorbing or reflecting in some ways, a lot of the pop culture, thinking the world was going to end in 1996. I mean, that's right out of, you know, 12 Monkeys and the Marilyn Manson album, Antichrist Superstar. And it's, uh, it's just really over the top um, stuff. I wanted to ask, I, um, I've seen this reference in a few other places. I've listened to some of your interviews about it. I, I, I couldn't find some of the direct was the, the links in your, um, in the book are, are uh, not working. They're dead links. And I, I, I think some of this stuff was released, if I'm not mistaken, by his own defense team when they were trying to prevent him from being um, sentenced to death. But I can't even find the some of the direct quotes. I can find the references to Rosie and some of the other stuff online. But other than your book, I can't even find this material anywhere. But anyway, I, I just wanted to ask I you that question. Else, to you. Yeah. There's a guy named uh, Nick Vanderleek who wrote a book about them called King of Freaks. And he compiled, I don't know if it's still available, but he compiled a lot of those records. So maybe they're not the Callahan AK. It's been 10 years. So that website probably dropped off, but I think it's still around. Somebody re-uploaded a lot of that stuff because I found it recently. So maybe those links are old. I probably just have to go back through and chain them, chain them. Yeah. And, and what do you think of the uh, hypothesis, the, the possession hypothesis? I mean, um, I mean, I, I shouldn't even say that. I mean, to me, it's just, it, it's really just a question of somebody's uh, sort of theological ontological position, or if they think it's just a mental illness, but this is exactly what it, it would be clinically um, possession, you know, it's what's being described here. And I'm finding out too, I'm studying like Mark David Chapman right now, because we're working on uh, a, a series involving the uh, spectacular crime and the Lennon murder and the Joker and all this stuff. And I mean, Chapman was possessed uh, and in prison, I mean, maybe he, I'm sure he was before, but I mean, in prison, he was literally possessed. He was giving the names of the demons and, and the whole nine yards. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I don't, I think it's callahan.mysite.com. 
Com right now. So it's in a different place. It was last updated 2017. 2017. So it's there. All those case documents are still online. They're just under a different URL. In a couple comments related to you know to Eccles and possession, I mean, there's just a couple things that uh, really struck me from that um, that midnight gospel episode that Brett referenced earlier. And again, that's part of the thing that just drives me absolutely crazy about you know contemporary alt spirituality stuff is that so many people who would like you know listen to Duncan Trussell, watch his show, watch, you know, just like all his appearances on Rogan and stuff like that. They might fancy themselves, you know, conspiracy theorists of a kind and stuff like that, but then they'll just like eat it up when, you know, this Crowleyan child murderer, you know, presents himself as a guru on, uh, you know, just like on this, you know, zany Netflix animated show. But like in that episode, you know, he talks, you know, just like, you know, Eccles talks about, uh, the importance of invoking energy and intelligences into your energy system. So, you know, he's still talking, you know, preaching the value of, um, yeah, letting intelligences within yourself. And even more strikingly than that, you know, he talks about when he's in prison, making his, his cell feel like a control tower. Uh, so just this, um, this kind of coincidence of absolute powerlessness of, you know, being this convicted man, you know, alone in his cell with this feeling of this, this crazy power trip where he thinks he's controlling the world, doing this astral traveling stuff. And, you know, then like he gets to be this, this huge celebrity that everyone, you know, feels sorry for, or even looks up to as a spiritual master when he gets out. But that, uh, you know, I think that's a really good description of a lot of kind of the phenomenology of possession is just that mixture of absolute power fantasy when you're, you're being programmed, like either by, a malign non-human entity or in more of like a monarch mind control context by a human, but that, uh, but that mixture of, um, yeah, of, of being an absolute state of being able to be manipulated while you're paralyzed and think you're having some kind of power trip. So all of that going on, but also this really, it kind of reminds me of Crowley in thinking about, um, you know, thinking about like one aspect of, uh, you know, of the case that you, that, that I've heard you talk about in other interviews is kind of the, you know, the contempt for flyover country, which you mentioned earlier and how so many celebrities, you know, get into this um, and, you know, where they get a chance to get one over on, you know, the rubes, those, you know, the, the, those, those stupid small town Americans who just, you know, they're probably fundamentalist Christians. They can't handle someone listening to metal or wearing black. They've got to make these wild accusations because of that. But someone like Eccles, he's, you know, he's a free thinker. He's interesting, you know, and, and all that stuff. And it makes me think about, you know, with Crowley, you know, being raised in the Plymouth Brethren and kind of reacting to that, just the way that the most extreme satanic occult evil gets justified just because people want to beat up on just like, you know, the, uh, you know, the biggest straw man possible of like the fundamentalist Christian. Um, and yeah, yeah. Do I've been called a fundamentalist Christian. They call me a hillbilly. I've been called all this stuff. I live in California. In Los Angeles, they just have this mindset that anybody who contradicts this is a, uh, you know, KKK member. It's it's ridiculous. I think it's kind of the kind of that mindset of those coastal types, um, but of which I guess I'm one because I live on the coast, but I don't share a lot of those views. I just looked at this case kind of objectively. I actually thought originally when they got out, I had heard I was like, oh, there must have been a, there must have been some kind of technicality, and they got out. I didn't really know. It wasn't until I heard Crowley was involved in the case that I kind of researched it. And then part one of the real fascinating, perplexing elements of the case is how it plays out in the court of public opinion, because it's really an insight into culture, intelligence, epistemology, all kinds of stuff. Why you believe you believe, how people can be manipulated. They have a PR guy. So not, you know, these even the most recent stuff that happened 
in Arkansas within the last month, they had this guy, Lonnie Story from New York involved in it. So why do you have a PR guy? Why do you need a PR guy? It's very unusual in a lot of criminal cases or sagas like this to have a, have a PR guy involved. So um, it is a, it is an interesting case. It goes into innocence fraud, like this whole innocence fraud movement that's going out as if the court, and it's really attack on the court system and civic, uh, the civics of the United States really where these guys are trying to get another bite of the apple through DNA testing or something like that. So it's a very profound, serious, in a larger context, West Memphis 3 and a lot of this innocence fraud of which the West Memphis 3 is part of, uh, it's taking place in a very profound environment that that's, uh, it's really an attack upon the system that's supposed to be functioning in a non-corrupt means. And that, you know, I think Eccles even just called the legal system within the last month, the legal system in Arkansas is corrupt. Right, right. It's just staggering the, uh, the, the totalization of the propaganda efforts around this case. I mean, like, even like I was, I was looking at the Wikipedia article for Damien Eccles and, you know, just for early life, you know, it ends with it's with saying Eccles with his habits of dressing in black and listening to heavy metal music was a misfit within the local community. He also wrote dark and expressive poems. And then that's it. Then it moves on to the murders. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like that's Wikipedia. I mean, like I first heard of the West Memphis three when I was like a, you know, a young teenager and I listened to Christian metal a lot and a Christian metal band that I listened to had a song called free the three about their obvious innocence. Um, so it's just really, it's just really, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just insane. I mean, even and it's still going on, he's this personage who is in the fourth series of stranger thing is based on Eccles. Right. And he's like a positive figure. It isn't interesting that they chose to choose him playing master of puppets at the very end, but he's like a quirky guy who wears metal t-shirts and dresses in black and stays in the trailer. It's all the same imagery of West Memphis three, by the way, but actually that goes through stranger things, which is probably another whole nother show because I can show you so many things that ties into my research. One of the kids name is buyers. They're on bikes all the time. Smiley face, uh, 77 names, the, uh, what is it? The, what's the demon's name in the first one? They do all kinds of word games and stuff like that. But yeah. Right, and, uh, right. And one of the 77 names of Satan, which I include in Prophet of Evil, which actually comes from the Satanic Bible. Right, right. And yes, there's yes, Stranger Things and, and a True Detective, even True Detective season three has some West Memphis three stuff, you know, and that, you know, I really like the first season of True Detective. I mean, it's basically dramatizing the Franklin scandal or something very similar to it. But then just like, no, just it was based, it was based upon something called the host Hosanna Church scandal in Ponchatoula, which is like whole uh, True Detective takes place in Louisiana. That's why that imagery is the same as this church where they were doing in a church, they were doing satanic rituals. They got busted. And it's actually very, it's actually one of those satanic crime cases that doesn't get reported uh, enough because it really did happen and they went through and were convicted. Oh, right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to. Satanic church things, you'll find it. It's out there. Okay. That no, that no, that's great. That's really important. Yeah, I've heard more. I've I've heard other comparisons to like Franklin and and similar things. But in, in, in you know, in any case, like it's taking like a more, I guess, realistic perspective on like these kind of things about like satanic crime and you know the connection to political structures and things like that. But I was, you know, I guess I just mean to say that even, you know, a season of that show just like takes the absolutely mainstream normie view of West Memphis three. Um 
Yeah. Um, Brett, do a you- lot easier. I think I think that the way that it's set up is that the social you know, structure of uh, the way the West Memphis three per, per, are portrayed is that they were victims of the system. And so it's a much, I think it's a much more palatable way to go, oh, to feel sorry for them than to actually say, wow, these guys are pretty dark. They are involved in dark stuff and they're guilty. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Brett, do you have anything else on Eccles before we move on to 09A? I know we can transition to that, but I just echo, yeah, there's, if, if uh, people are not aware of it, I mean, it's like a, it, there's really like an orthodoxy around, uh, especially Eccles's innocence, all three of their, their innocence here. You can't even mention that they've been convicted and never acquitted. They, I mean, I, I, they're constantly described in mainstream news as suspected and, and so on. And so- It's nonsense. It's just really yeah. crazy because they are guilty. They're still guilty. There's been no return. As a lawyer, if I was convicted of some crime, I'm still a lawyer in good standing in California. I've been one since 1998, so it's almost 25 years. But if I got convicted of a crime like stealing a candy bar from 7-Eleven and it was unjust, I would spend every day making sure I could find something to acquit me or overturn that judge, overturn that judgment on appeal or something so I could get it off my record and clear my name and do all that. They have not done that since they got out in 2011. They said they say they're doing it, but they're not really. They haven't successfully found the alternate subject yet, which is very telling. And their case, one of the elements of the case that isn't even emphasized, I haven't seen it emphasized, and anybody else really talk about it, is this case went to appeals to the Arkansas Supreme Court, and they verified everything in the lower court. Right. So that's the whole idea of a functioning legal system: is you have a proper appellate process whereby a whole nother set of eyeballs can look at what happened at the lower court and say what is there anything wrong and sometimes cases do get overturned things go to the supreme court especially if there's a difference in the, the different federal districts but this case actually they sent a writ of certiorari to the supreme court which was rejected which usually means there's nothing at the supreme court for them to decide so that's just part of the whole long-term saga a lot of people don't know about that yeah, and I mean, if, if people don't read the book, they should at least know, and I didn't know this, that of the whatever six confessions that Miss Kelly made, the one that he made after he was convicted with his lawyer at his side, begging him not to say it. I mean, come on, how do you explain, how do you reconcile that with their innocence? It's, it's right. And, and that's recorded. You can listen to him. That a lawyer's doing his good job. A lawyer's doing a great job. He's saying, don't do this. This is going to jeopardize you. And Jesse Miss Kelly's like, no, 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 I want to, I want to confess again. Well, yes, yeah, so everybody should should check out uh, that that book as an interest in the case. But to transition to Order of Nine Angles, you write somewhere. I have a note here. I'm not even sure where it's from. You said that Eccles was influenced by I think it was Michael Ford, this Order of Nine Angles figure, who I think was sending out like a newsletter or something uh, from from Texas. Do, does this ring a bell? And and who is Ford? I have to go back through. So there, the Order of Nine Angles was started by Maya back in the eight, late early '80s, late '70s, maybe. But he, they've had different outer heads of the order, kind of like another, like the OTO, where there's somebody who's like the front face. One of them is Michael Ford. And I think Eccles uh, read his stuff. So he was familiar with Michael Ford's stuff. I just have to go back and confirm that. I do know that he he liked Greer, um, but Michael Ford was one of the outer heads. He didn't seem to really uh, gel with the 09A, but he's definitely in the kind of left-hand path, Texas community. 
Right. And oh, uh, one other thing about uh, uh, about your abomination, but before we fully transition is uh, John Douglas, uh, Brett and I you know, covered Mindhunter on the show recently. We did a full episode on that. And uh, you, you're, you're, you, know, you mentioned uh, Douglas, is, you know, who you know, uh, was the inspiration for the Jack Crawford character in Silence of the Lambs series and for the Holden Ford character in David Fincher's Mindhunter Netflix series, which Brett and I just basically you know, chalk up to being like Manson family propaganda in terms of you know, just total misdirection about the serial killer phenomenon. But like you, know, you, uh, you quote him in your book and from, um, you know, one of, from one of his books written with the same co-author as the, as the book that inspired uh, Mindhunter. Paul Shaker. What was that? Old Shaker. Guy's oh. name is Old Shaker. Okay. Yeah. 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 And um, you know where he basically just you know repeats you know uh, you know Eccles' version of events, and not only that, just much more damningly, he says that he looked into the reality of satanic crime of satanic murder and found nothing. He said it's not there at all. I mean, right. just that's just absolutely insane to me. And like uh, for the record, uh, you know Douglas says he really doesn't like his depiction as like Crawford and any of the Science of the Lambs related properties, but he loves Mindhunter. He said you know he consulted for that and said that show was like living his life over again. So this guy giving like, you know, the stamp of approval to this, you know, to, you know, to this David Fincher, very popular Netflix show, uh, you know, just like also is making a statement as disingenuous as saying satanic murder just doesn't exist. I don't right, know. But he's, he's, he's in conformance with FBI kind of outlook. Landing report says the same thing, that all the satanic stuff is actually child sexual abuse. Go, go read the landing report. Ken Landing was very influential. So it seems to be something to like that's our that's the way we're going to have the outlook and we're sticking to it just like the fbi fbi used to say there was no such thing as the cosa nostra so they've done certain things in their history uh many very questionable things very recently as a matter of fact <laughs> but um they have a certain ideology and i I've, I've i've discussed that with ken and me on my podcast william ramsey investigates how many problems there is i put it into abomination the list of occult influence crimes is encyclopedic. You could do a whole book on it. You can just do Matamoros, oh God, Beast of Satan, um, Ricky Casso. These guys are all, they get really deep, deep involved and go loco, man. So uh, I, I was really disappointed in Douglas in his view of the West Memphis Three, his connection to the West Memphis Three, um, because he, in my opinion, either this ghostwriter himself overlooked so many things that uh, you can see because the, the court records show everything that about them and uh, people threatening violence and stomping on dogs and I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to skin you, and all kinds of threats and scary stuff that was going on. Because he flat out said, I saw, show no indications of violence. So, yeah. yeah, wow. It's, yeah. Like, it's not good. Yeah. And he, I mean, that's a respected person. There's a lot of respected people who are involved in this case. Who's, my opinion of them completely changed when I got around, you know, to researching their background. I didn't know much about Depp. I didn't know the background of Depp, Rollins, um, Margaret Cho. So, uh, you know, but then when I found out about their background and stuff, it's like, oh, I see why you're supporting Right, right. And um, yeah, I mean, we could go on about abomination. I really hope everyone reads that. But to transition to Global Death Cult, your book on the Order of Nine Angles, um, I want to just first kind of provide a little bit of a bird's eye view of O9A to listeners who might not be familiar. And then, yeah, just okay. let, keep yeah. talking. I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea. Get okay. Some water. Right back. Keep talking. All right. So 
Order of Nine Angles. So we'll have um, uh, William answer some more specific questions about this. But if you don't know, more or less a satanic Nazi terrorist organization hell-bent on destroying what they call like the Magian civilization uh, based in Judaism and Christianity. Primary figure associated with them is this enigmatic guy by the name of David Myatt. And, um, and uh, William has really extensive biographical details on him in his book. But basically, 098 takes this extreme evolutionary superhumanist viewpoint where they want to become these exalted satanic elites at the rest of humanity's expense, eventually creating a space colonizing galactic Aryan Imperium. Uh, they're really into colonizing the galaxy eventually. Uh, so they distinguish themselves from other forms of Satanism and left-hand path occultism with their really intense uh, emphasis on human sacrifice or culling, as they term it, as a method of breaking down one's moral boundaries to gain magical power. So uh, Onene encourages secrecy, uh, saying that they're confusing and contradictory a nature of their mythology and online information about them, theories about them. That's all part of the initiatory process whereby only those with true satanic character are going to be able to wade through all of that to become true Onene. And they also are all about infiltration with their concept of insight roles, where members take deep cover social roles, taking on careers, religions, climate various organizational hierarchies to advance O9A objectives or find opportunity to just sow violence and chaos. O9A believes in a pantheon of dark gods who exist in an a-causal realm, but can manifest in our material realm, often through uh, uh, being shapeshifters. And they're, they say that the most important of those gods are Satan and Baphomet, Baphomet for them being kind of this dark earth goddess figure. And so although they frequently use the term satanic, uh, some of their texts uh, clarified that they, uh, they're technically esoteric pagans with hermetic origins rather than being part of Satanism as, as technically understood. And so, yeah, this isn't hypothetical, you know, just about some LARPing group. Like there are numerous instances of documented violence related to O9A and related groups uh, over, even over the last couple of years. So that's a, that's a broad sketch. Is there anything that you'd add to that, William? No, but it's fair, you know, it's kind of surfaced recently, at least to the public perception. Um, so, but it is, somebody has put thought and effort and intelligence into formulating its core doctrines. And the, really what sets them apart, and there's a really interesting part of my book where Myatt, who's reputed to be the founder of, the do, of a lot of stuff, or at least the compiler, is talking to Michael Aquino and differentiating the ideas of the ONA from the Temple of Set in that they are much more hardcore and they believe in human sacrifice. Like they're overt in their explanation that, you know, culling is important. So that's kind of what keeps them in line with the Nazis, the, the Nazi worldview that culling is actually a positive because the weak get taken out. And I think that's a lot of uh, what the ONA has. And a lot of their doctrines is about selecting an offer, how you select these people to take them out, homo hubriati and uh, all this stuff like that. So. Um, it's really surfaced recently. There's been cases of deaths associated with the LNA, Daniel Hussein in the UK, um, Von Nudigem in Toronto, Meltzer just got convicted in New York City at the same place Maxwell got convicted. So he was sending stuff to the LNA. He had a copy of the Sinister Tradition, which is one of the compilations of one of their earlier pamphlets. So that's why I wrote the book is because a lot of the stuff is surfacing from the LNA in Russia like crazy places all over the world, Serbia. So, yeah, but it really started in out of the Nazi movement, a guy by the name of uh, David Myatt, who was involved in neo-Nazism and actually was in a Gladio group, stay behind Gladio group called Combat 88 in the UK. 
and was involved in far-right politics and occultism at the same time, who moved through kind of Crowleyism, uh, rejected Temple of Set, and kind of created his own, like you said, they wouldn't call it Satanism. It would be, I would actually call it almost a neo-Druidic group um, with its own kind of ideology, much different than Crowley, not based on the Kabbalah, but the Tree of Word, a septenary way, seven steps to the top. And for the fifth step, you're supposed to kill somebody. So that's what I'd add. Right. And I was going to ask you about uh, that relationship with, uh, you know, with other forms of occultism. Like I found those letters with Aquino just so fascinating because, you know, so like, um, so they just because the way that they talk about uh, Thelema or uh, or the Temple of Set or basically any other group other than them, like they just try to distance themselves from everybody else because they're the real hardcore people because they do human sacrifice. Like with Crowley, especially like they swear up and down that their aeonic system has nothing to do with Crowley's aeon, that Thelema is this dead, impractical spirituality, that Crowley's this poser who never did anything evil, that Crowley's system was still trapped in the Meiji and Judeo-Christian paradigm. And then when Maya and Aquino are talking, like it's just so interesting. I, I assume our listeners you know, know, you know, Aquino, Temple of Set founder, you know, colonel in the U.S. Army, he literally wrote the book on psychological warfare, he was involved in some really, really, uh, you know, creepy PEDO, uh, you know, stuff, cases probably, um, but it's it's like they're they're telling each other that they recognize the other as a valid Satanist of a type, but they've, they've got skepticism about the other's approach, you know, you know Aquino's kind of taking this posture of, you know, anyone can call themselves a Satanist, but, you know, Temple of Set, we've got, you know, structure and ethics for a reason, and, you know, you're just, you being so freeform isn't really a strength and Maya is you know in turn insinuating that like well temple of set like every other satanic group other than onine it's it's too church like it's too too dogmatic and only onine is truly sinister truly practical and numinous and all the other words that they kind of obnoxiously sprinkle in every other sentence and it's all seems a bit stupid to me to be honest you know just that you know just kind of dumb like like so like that like onine and like crowley are like obviously both worthy of scorn and revulsion but the idea that your average onine edgelord is like the only kind of genuinely radical satanic person that's ever lived and crowley had nothing to do with any of that just seems kind of laughable in light of what we know about crowley so i don't know what do you make of it that you it know these interesting i talked to somebody who said it's like two arrogant pride snobs comparing themselves to one another so, right, right. Like, uh, it's like Mayat has this attitude of, well, if this group is evil, then we're evil times infinity. And it's really kind of obnoxious. Yeah. So there, I think it's interesting because you kind of see the insight into their respective outlooks and the way they look. Like Mayat says, you guys are into this, but you just keep it secret. We're telling everybody. We only want the elite. You want anybody to go up through your system, all this other stuff. Um, but yeah, and in my and that's kind of what differentiates the ONA maybe from these other structures like the Temple of Set or the OTO or the AA or uh, Golden Dawn is that Maya just had the seven-step way, but anybody could pick up his doctrines or his ideas. He didn't really care. He wanted it in, dispersed. So that's why most of their uh, documents, most of their pamphlets really start out as individual three-page, four-page pamphlets are distributed all over the internet. Like you can go and read them. There's thousands and thousands of documents that are added on into this corpus. And it's very different, very unusual as people come in, they add their stuff, um, but add names, different terms. But yeah, it is it is interesting to see them compare. Like he, he had contempt for, it's interesting, he has contempt for Crowley, but one of his earlier documents that he clearly edited or somebody edited had a reverence to Crowley 
that he eventually took out. So at some point, he was basing, you know, some of his stuff off Crowley, but he edited it out. Oh, that's interesting. And oh, I would say, and with like uh, Lovecraft <clears throat> as well, with like kind of like Kenneth Grant style, like melding of like Crowley and Lovecraft. Like O nine A is just like so always just like oh, our dark God, dark gods, nothing to do whatsoever with Lovecraftian stuff at all. Uh, you know, just like our gods are a causal, and those ones aren't. It's just like all this semantic stuff. You know, right. just paper over obvious similarities is pretty silly. And he uh, said like he got the dark gods from this document that he found in the mid mid Middle East and all this stuff but nobody's ever seen that original document you know so they 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 always try to tie themselves to the babylonian tradition or the sumerian tradition that's really the real apex of these modern occultists is to really get the cred street cred of going all the way back to middle eastern sumerianism and but nobody really can do that i don't think it's possible right at least not yeah, Eccles in uh, in Midnight Gospel, I think, basically says the same thing. I think he makes a comment about uh, you know about Sumeria or something very similar. Yeah, Crowley did it too. He said Crowley said like this is a perfect religion of the Sumerian tradition. Right, right, and, and uh, Lavenda, Lavenda that has the same story. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say like the Simonomicon, you know, which you know like you know Peter Lavenda's you know uh, Peter Lavenda's you know version of the Necronomicon is like Lovecraft interpreted, you know, just like with a, you know through the lens of kind of like Sumerian mythology, basically. So. That's important, but um, I mean, we could go, we could go off on Lavenda and what a vexing thing. Yeah, Lavenda is a whole other story. So yeah, so all these guys, all these occultists, were all trying to go back there. But I mean, the real thing is that um, these guys have real effect in the real world. Right. They have effect. There, these people are working off of these other guys' ideas, and so that's really what the, I mean. It, these would all just be, you know, posturing, you know, wannabes, but. If somebody takes that action, then it's you're in a different you know, realm. I think that's what happened. Yeah, and that's where I want to ask you about the Nazi connection, kind of the uh, you know the relationship between uh, O9A, you know, satanic ideology and and uh, and Nazi groups, because like oh, with O9A. You know, they, they kind of see Nazism and Hitler worship as like a practical extension of their broader, sinister, metaphysical and civilizational goals. And then I guess it kind of looks like the case, although correct me if I'm wrong, that's something like, you know, Adam Waffen Division and, um, you know, and similar groups are Nazi organizations that find like O9A style, like satanic extremism useful in their goals of violently eradicating the like, Jewish and Christian civilization. And then the dilemma, I think, then, is that we're in this odd position where there's, there's been this crazy, absurd semantic inflation of the word Nazi, where it basically yeah. means like anyone who deviates even slightly from the woke consensus on a given day, you know, is a Nazi. And you have like, you know, like a brain dead elite pawn like AOC just like agitating for a domestic war on terror that probably in the long term would get anyone who talks about conspiracy theories jailed for thought crime. But then on the other hand, there are these actual Hitler worshiping, genocidal, insane Nazi par- you know, paramilitary organizations. Organizations. And, you know, they don't look like MAGA boomers taking an unguided tour of the Capitol. They don't even look like an idiot like Richard Spencer. I mean, you look at someone like James Mason, you know, author of like the Siege Manifesto, which basically advocates for spree murder in defense of the white race, you know, and groups that he was a lone wolf at, uh, advocate, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, like, lone, yeah, like an advocate for lone wolf terrorism, and you know, groups that um, that kind of take up the siege mantle. You know, like Adamoff and Temple of Blood. You know, these are maniacs who they hate Christianity, they hate civilization, and easily get enthusiastic about explicitly occult and satanic material. So, can you draw that connection, historically speaking? You know, maybe say a little bit about. Um, uh, you know, about Mason and the Nazi party and the connection there with Charles Manson and uh, other major cult figures and how that persists with groups like Adam Waffen? 
Absolutely. So ONA, like I said earlier, Myatt ONA is in the far right there. There's a guy by the name of Colin Wilson, who is a leader of their, I think it was National Action. They're kind of uh, Nazi group, neo-Nazi group. Colin Wilson, and here in the States, it was Norman Lincoln Rockwell was a Nazi. Colin Wilson and uh, Rockwell knew each other. They were friends. It's interesting. So you had this kind of tie across the Atlantic between two far-right groups back in the 70s. Uh, Myatt works under uh, Colin Wilson, but these these things start growing. He starts getting into the occult. It interspersed, and then these kind of more modern groups, uh, was it, what's it? Mason was part of, under, worked under Rockwell and wrote Siege as kind of missives from 1980 to 1986, and then they were compiled. So he was, there were like these lone wolf killers some of their names, I've included them in my book. I can't remember them offhand. But these guys he admired, he went off and like randomly killed. One was, uh, was Lincoln. I can't remember his name. Uh, they randomly killed people all over the country. There was just really nasty uh, serial killers. <clears throat> but he admired them. And so then these kind of groups morphed. Adam Waffen kind of comes out of the, the internet, comes out of this group called, it was a, it was a message board called Iron Forge, I think it was called, a fascism in the Europe. And then they kind of jail Autumn Waffen, 2015, guy by the name of Russell, Clinton Russell. Uh, then they kind of expand, but then these ideas of the ONA start interspersing into Adam Waffen as it grows. It never got really big, but it was uh, very nasty. I think there was 100 internal members and a hundred like porch members who wanted to become an, uh, internal. But then there was a kind of a battle inside of this Atomoff and where these people were gonna be actual Nazis or this ONA version of the kind of modern Nazi and the same ideology kind of uh, Nazi racism, accelerationism, uh, nihilism and kind of postmodern ethos, postmodern aesthetics, really all their books and stuff. Um, Iron Gates was one of their books and it's a lot of really nasty stuff, sexual stuff. And it turns out a lot of these guys are, they get busted with really hardcore, like pedo porn and stuff like that all over the world. And whether it's Adam Waffen, Sonnenkrieg division, uh, some of these other divisions that have been banned in the UK and Australia, but you see this as a kind of a global movement. So this ONA gets interspersed and comes up and you see these guys, like there's been researchers who've caught these guys infiltrating the uh, the military. It really is true. Like they're in the military and military garb with either the distinctive kind of skull bandana that they wear around their face or one of the books that comes from the ONA, Sinister Forces, uh, Sinister Tradition. But it really was there. I mean, it's, I, I didn't, I didn't, and I wasn't making it up. Like I just kept researching going, wow, this really is interspersed. So that's one element of the kind of far right. And what is scary too, is that there's just the pure ONA guys who aren't maybe even affiliated with a far right group or a Nazi. Like we don't know Von Nudigem, I think came to the ONA coming up through esoteric interests and really just became kind of an independent lone wolf. There were two stabbings. They, we, they got him for one, he might've killed another guy, um, Singh or something like in Toronto, like a week before the killing got busted for. So um, it really is around, I don't know, like some of the guys who got caught in the whole Charlottesville thing or Adam Waffen, but a lot of them got busted. They did this huge swatting thing 
um, Sutter was Sutter was out of the Temple of Blood, which was a Nexian of the ONA. Nexian was kind of like their uh, idea of a cell, kind of like a Bader Meinhof or communist cell or something like that. But he got he was exposed by one of the defense attorneys for one of the guys in Texas who got busted for swatting and making threats as Souter was identified as taking money from the FBI, I think $175,000. So all this stuff is very recent. Some of these guys haven't been tried. Um, some are still in jail, but uh, really is, it really is a, this kind of new phenomenon that's taking place within this kind of internet globalization, ease of, ease of communications and travel and stuff like that. So it's, it's uh, something to be concerned about. Yeah, it's, it's extremely concerning. And because you mentioned there about um, Joshua Souter, you know, being paid by the FBI, you mentioned earlier about, you know, David Myatt himself being involved in this, uh, in this NATO Operation Gladio network. So like, uh, you know, organization called 88. So I'm wondering what, to what degree do you think it's probable that there's been like maybe some kind of persistent active influence of intelligence agencies on this phenomena? I mean, I know there's obviously a lot of just like kind of mimetic mind virus and self brainwashing stuff going on with these groups, but given the extensive history of espionage and the occult kind of touching each other. I'm wondering what you think there. And then to kind of tack on a second part to that question, you know, the power network that, you know, um, that touches or underlies kind of everyone from, you know, from, from Crowley to, you know, to Epstein, you know, this, you know, this is, uh, seems somewhat affiliated with what you could say, like Anglo-American globalism, intelligence services related to those of Britain, the U.S., Israel, you know, ostensibly a power block that is extremely anti-Nazi. So does that make these groups like who think of themselves as like the greatest opponents of the system, just really useful idiots for what they claim to hate the most? I mean, is their role in this just to create mindless violence that would make it easier for elites to construct a technocratic globalist power apparatus on top of the chaos? I mean, is the, the role of something like Adam Waffen, the 09A, just to be kind of shock troopers for, um, you know, for the dissolve part of the, you know, kind of uh, dissolve and coagulate alchemical formula that's applied to geopolitics? It's a great question. They could be willing dupes, but some of these guys are kind of hapless and I don't think all of them are uh, puppeteered. Some of them are clearly working independently, but I wouldn't call them, put them on the kind of brightest, you know, spectrum of the best and brightest. But I mean, I, I think it's pretty evident that Sutter was turned in like 2004. So he just got exposed last year, I think, or this year. So he was probably feeding information for years. I know some of these other groups, I'm not going to name their names. These are, to me, clear uh, honey trap, kind of like uh, fly trap operations for people. None of those people successfully ever killed anybody. But the idea, ideology of the ONA is out. So it's, it's being, the culture is being bandied about in certain groups, either cult groups, far-right groups, independent people. Uh, they can access this kind of version of Satanism, whether they come across it or not. But, I mean, you can see, so that, if that's the intelligence agencies, they're, they're doing a real disservice because they're putting out pretty nasty ideas about possession going out at night, maiming people. I think Cremo, this guy who was the shooter in Wisconsin, he clearly knew a little bit about the ONA. He had like an Arcturus document or something, which is one of the stars that you look through where the dark gods are, which is really unusual. I haven't seen that in any kind of lone shooter yet. Um, and he had smiley faces on his 
on his badges. So these ideas are being, you know, the medic, medic, medic effects are still out there. You can go watch uh, Ed Sheeran's video, Bad Habits, 400 million views. It's, it is the ONA ideology encapsulated into a four, you know, three and a half minute song. Out at night, vampirism, possession, smiley face, new person in the morning. I mean, it's all there. So, uh, and also this other group, it's called Bring Me the Horizon, same stuff, nihilism, Crowley's universal hexagram, all the ideologies there. Yeah. So it's being, sorry, it's being, it's out there in the, it's out there in the psychosphere, you know, these, these ideas. Yeah, and uh, with you know Primo, I would also you know say that um, the fact one of his like only somewhat interesting non-generic comments on like the the lyrics interpretation site Genius was specifically about Crowley's Aeon of the Child. So yeah, I mean uh, with Cremo, I, I I think it was kind of just a he drank the cultural poison enough that he kind of just got like in kind of an at home MK Ultra case. I don't think he had a handler, but yeah, I think he was definitely influenced by 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 both Crowley and, and probably O9A uh, stream. But yeah, the Sheeran thing. This, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot this week because, uh, you know, I, I heard you um, mention the Bad Habits music video on the Program to Chill podcast. Um, and, you know, and then I was thinking like, you know, Ed Sheeran, just like the most mainstream, supposedly like harmless pop star. And, you know, just like the world, like the last person that people right. would think of when you're talking about violent Nazi satanic paramilitary groups. Um, but then, yeah, I watched this video. Um, I watched this video, you know, for his Bad Habits song, which, you know, was a really popular single. And, uh, you know, I, I used to listen to Bring Me the Horizon. And I, uh, you know, so I, 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 I what was that? I didn't. Wow, interesting. Yeah, an actual they, listener. I didn't know. I thought they were kind of an obscure group. Yeah, well, you know, I um, yeah, I, I I like a variety of heavy genres, and like I try to stay away from anything that's uh, you know kind of touched by you know occultism and stuff like that. You know, you know now, of course, but uh, but yeah, you know, in younger angstier years, I was really into Bring Me the Horizon, and they've become a lot more mainstream. I think that's part of what's interesting is the coming together of you know someone like Ed Sheeran, you know, getting um, you know, a band that like it's a lot more popular now, but still not nearly Ed Sheeran levels to like play with him to do this bad habit single together at the Brit Awards, I think right. is, um, I think is really telling, uh, because, you know, I, I think a really key piece of this is that both Sheeran and Bring Me the Horizon are, you know, are very influenced by a, by a band, Cradle of Filth, an extreme metal gothic band. And I saw, you know, that, uh, that uh, Jimmy Fallon Gong from the Program to Chill podcast had tweeted this information after uh, you know your talk with him on 09A about Cradle of Filth um, uh, uh, in, um, influencing Ed Sheeran. Um, you know where you know, like Cradle of Filth, you know, like talks about oh we might collaborate with Ed Sheeran at some point. But this band in their early albums, they were filling it with just very explicit, purposeful 09A references. I mean, they talk in oh, interviews. Really? Oh, we're we're really into the Order of Nine Angles and. Uh, and Ed Sheeran says, like, oh, I grew up listening to Cradle of Filth. And so did uh, uh, Oliver Sykes from, uh, from Bring Me the Horizon, their vocalist. He also says, I grew up listening to Cradle of Filth. So these two artists both listened uh, fervently to a band that is explicitly trying to promote you know, the order of nine angles. So like I, I did a really deep dive into both Bring Me the Horizon and Ed Sheeran. So I won't go into all of it now for the sake of time, but I can't help but go over some of the, the suspicious things that I found related to them and then you can get your reaction to that. And then, um, and then maybe transition into, uh, into Parallax view. Um, 
But I was looking into Ed Sheeran and I found out about his cousin, Laura Sheeran, and she makes much darker music uh, than, than, than Ed does. And, you know, she says that they used to play music together a lot, but way less so since Ed got signed. But Laura Sheeran talks about how her mother was, she says, mistakenly called a witch by those in her rural Irish town uh, because of, you know, she was into alternative medicine and alternative ideas. And this inspires Ed Sheeran's cousin, Laura, to write a theatrical performance piece, uh, which she says it's a dark, immersive piece, which explores themes of the supernatural, the feminine, and the occult using uh, music, visuals, dance, and spoken word. That performance is called Changeling. Then uh, then Laura Sheeran, uh, Ed's cousin, writes an album called Lust of Pig and the Fresh Blood is the name of her first album. And like all her music's kind of like this. And you can imagine that the tone, the artwork, the lyrics, that you know that that accompany this, um, so that I think is very relevant. What's going on with Ed Sheeran's family? Uh, oh, also the fact that a lot of people have compared Sheeran in the Bad Habits video to uh, to the Joker. And Brett and I, we just started a series based on the 2019 film where we kind of find that the character of the Joker is like this demonic egregore that's been unleashed into culture. That's kind of the center of a huge nexus of parapolitical and occult stuff. But then the year after the Bad Habit single, Sheeran releases a song called The Joker and the Queen featuring Taylor Swift. Obviously, Swift is the queen um, and Sheeran is the Joker. And then each song on that album uh, features an individual uh, artwork that's a different uh, butterfly. And so anyone listening to this probably knows the monarch symbolism is obvious. And then I find out that Sharon has built uh, this kind of weird interfaith chapel on his estate um, that he says, uh, you know, it's, there's a room in it specifically to be able to watch the sunrise because Sharon says the sunrise is relevant in both the Abrahamic and Oriental tradition. So this weird syncretistic chapel sunrise is a big trope in that music video. And then it comes out that Sharon built a crypt beneath that chapel. So without saying anything actionable, I'll just say I'm really uncomfortable imagining what's going on in Ed Sheeran's chapel. Um, and that's without even getting into Bring Me the Horizon, which I watch so many of their music videos. It's all wall to wall Illuminati mind control stuff. They did a song with Grimes. Grimes, you know, um, you know mother of a couple of Elon Musk's you know, kids is the most suspect person in the world. So yeah, all of that. Nihilist blues, all that stuff. Yeah, I saw that. Yep. Yeah. So with Cradle of Filth, Sharon, um, and Bring Me the Horizon, you have this triangulation of these three different kinds of pop culture. You know, this actual more obscure stuff with Cradle of Filth, really actual extreme metal. You know, Bring Me the Horizon is you know kind of like this deathcore turned metalcore turned turned alt metal band that kind of slowly becomes more poppy and more mainstream. And then you have Ed Sheeran, the most mainstream, you know, just pop celebrity in existence. And then all three of them have this connection to this most the most fringe, satanic, crazy, violent Nazi ideology possible. It's really astounding. It really is. Like It's like thinking out loud, like this milk toast, sweet, romantic song. And then he comes out with bad habits. I mean, hanging out with these characters from Bring Me the Horizon. Like that's, it's crazy. Like that's one of the rituals in the ONA. I just think it's the third part of the septenary tree is you're supposed to go somewhere and lie down from sundown to sunrise. So you're supposed to sit there for 12 hours and stare at the stars. Like, so that's what makes me think of that one. It, it bring me the horizon. That's what he's doing. He's trying to get through that ritual. And that's full Druidism and stuff like that. And that goes into West Memphis 3. If you want to talk about the Druidism, you can go listen to my interview with Chris Knowles on William Ramsey Investigates about all that stuff. So, I mean, 
yeah, it gets to you. There's a different aspect and different elements. These are very complex. This is not like one dimensional type of uh, ideology. But I was just, I was just going to append, you know, before we talk about parallax, you just, uh, yeah, the, the ONA stuff, order of nine angles. I mean, the, the recent revelations about how it's been infiltrated, it's probable use as a psychological warfare operation, you know, corresponding to the kind of Michael Aquino blueprint. Um, and I'm like, wow, the Cremio connection, I didn't know. So that is, that's overwhelming. Yeah. But it, with my own recent research, it got me thinking about uh, this little detail in the Hinckley case. I can't obviously go into the Hinckley case. I mean, he's connected to the Bushes, tried to supposedly tried to assassinate Reagan, but he also supposedly tried to join the National Socialist Party of America, the uh, the Nazi Party of America, which has been since disbanded, um, which given the other evidence of his intelligence connections makes you see the same connection, like infiltrating, if he wasn't, if he was some kind of intelligence agent, was he also infiltrating these uh, farthest right uh, organizations? Although the, the claim itself is kind of sus though, because it comes from Michael Allen, the president of the party at the time, and Harold Covington, the founder of the party, and both of these people have been accused of being fed. So, um, but I think that, yeah, in one way or another, the satanic Nazi stuff is is being used as a social solvent, you know, as a cultural solvent, you know, to, to dissolve um, the the traditional culture. And also the other aspect, you can use it to discredit, you know, the conservative movement at the same time. So it's killing two birds with one stone. It's kind of obvious in some ways how it's um, how it would be used. Um, Wasn't there a picture of him with uh, in one of the meetings, Hinckley in one of the meetings? I think there's a picture of him in one of the Nazi meetings, right? Um, I'll write that down. I know the claim about seeing him, he, people said they saw him at a rally um, in what was it, Chicago. I, I, I think he was doing like, a lot of moving around as these people do, Chapman, Hinckley, they don't seem to stop moving around. Um, I don't know about the picture, but that's thanks for the lead. I'll, I'll look into that. I'll see if I can find it. It might be in my research. I, I'm pretty sure I saw him when I was doing this kind of right-wing research that he was in there. And then, uh, and then James Mason in in Siege, I think, has a reference to uh, to you know to Hinckley having been part of like his Nazi related yes. organization. So, regardless of the yes. veracity of the different levels of that, James Mason is saying, "Isn't it great that we had James, that that we had you know that we had Hinckley in there?" And I have to say, if people don't check out anything else about Hinckley, I mean, they ought to know because it's 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 been memory hold that. Um, his brother, Scott, was supposed to meet with uh, Neil Bush, who lived in Colorado at the time, the day after. I mean, this was covered by, the, I think, the defunct Houston Post. Um, and it was, it was picked up nationally for a short time in memory hole. But the whole the families were, were entangled in many ways. The father, John Hinckley Sr., was in the oil business, was an acquaintance of Poppy Bush. Uh, John Hinckley Jr. seems to have been involved in congressional campaigns for the Bushes. So... Um, yeah, it, it just defies all, all logic um, that this is a lone, the lone gunman theory in this case when it's an acquaintance of the vice president's family who's accused of shooting the president because he watched Taxi Driver too many times or something. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's sold to the public that they just need to stop swallowing. Right. Um, yeah, there, I think they're in Siege, the fourth edition. There's like five or six references to Hinckley too. I don't know. I don't know. They're saying that this is, I'll, I'll read the caption. Hinckley at Nazi meeting, John W. Hinckley Jr. far right charge in the shooting of President Reagan stands with other members of the National Socialist Party of America at national meeting and dedication of an office in St. Louis on March 11th, 1978. When did he shoot Reagan? 81? 80? Right. It was right at the beginning of his administration. It was in March. Yes, it was in March of 81. 81. 
it's interesting. When I lived in DC, I had a friend who lived right across from the from that hotel, and that whole area where Reagan was shot was for some reason they redid the entire landscape. So you can't even you can't even go back and find out like what it looked like. Like the, the wall was gone. It's just the whole thing. The whole architecture was totally changed. Anyway, so that's Inkley. Spoilers for the parallax view to follow. All right. Are we uh, good to transition to, to parallax view? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So, uh, William, the film that you selected for us to discuss uh, to, to end this interview is The Parallax View, kind of, uh, a pretty legendary political thriller within the conspiracy world. Um, and uh, could you talk to us about uh, about why you chose this film in particular and um, yeah, how it relates to everything we've just been talking about? I think it's probably one of the most paranoid films ever made. And it was made at that time, right after the 60s, after all the assassinations. And it featured, you know, Warren Beatty, who at that time was really at his peak. And I'm really surprised it got made because it didn't pull any punches on the assassinations. People are getting killed left and right. And it's really, it, they didn't whitewash anything about how casual the like, people were getting shot and killed. And it's really about Patsy selection. It, you're not supposed to know that. You're thinking it's assass that's, that's like the twist at the end. But I think that that's like, the, that's the cleverness of it. It's how clever it was and how it applied to very, um, I mean, we just talked about the Reagan assassination. These are high level, at least involved in that movie. These are high level events. One was a Senator, if I remember the first shooting, and then the next guy was running for president, right? So you see that these people are thinking about taking them out. I think that the first shooting of the Senator, if I remember correct, the um, Seattle what, Spire Tower, he was his last famous word was, and sometimes I'm too independent for my own good. And I think that that's like, they got the themes down. Like these people have to toe the line. If they don't toe the line, they're gone. And so I think Parallax View also is about that change in reality that it's so on a personal level for me, and maybe a lot of other people where you realize, well, there's another Parallax here that changes the entire um, walk of, of American post-Mott War history, really World War II, but probably, but how much of these stories are, are about lone nuts and patsies are just the opposite, that they are, that they're put in place for other forces to facilitate political and sociological change. So I think it, in that way, it's a brilliant movie. And I think the guy who wrote it, I can't remember his name right now, like he wrote it and disappeared. <laughs> like, I don't think he wrote anything else. So it's like, and I think the, it was Scott Pacula who died too, was the director, died in some um, weird car accident, right? You hear that? Wow, I did. I actually did not know that about Pacula. And I have a bunch of notes on him. Um, you know, he spent a career basically making uh, conspiracy movies. Um, yeah, so he died suspiciously. He, he died literally. He was driving on the Long Island Expressway, Melville, New York. Driver in front of him struck a metal pipe crashing through Packard's windshield, strike him in the head. That's supposedly how he died. Wow. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so the, I, I don't know which writer you were thinking of. So I have some notes on the right. No, it's based on a novel by a band named Lauren or Loren Singer. Yes, that's him, yeah. 
And I'm quoting Wikipedia here, follow the Yale connection. So he was, quote, sent to Yale University by the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, to study the Malay language, but the war ended before he could serve active duty. While with the OSS, Singer learned details of covert operations that became the theme of many of his novels. Um, so he, the, the novel is more about the John F. Kennedy assassination uh, than the RFK assassination that got uh, adapted in the film. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a mix of both. But um, the interesting thing too is the screenplay was kind of ghostwritten or it was script doctored by Robert Town. I, don't, I mean, you may or, not be, yeah. may or may not be familiar with Robert Town. Yeah. He um, wrote Chinatown, figures a lot, a, a bit into Jason Horsley's 16 Maps of Hell. Like there's this great... Um, epigraph in one of Horsley's chapters from, from with the Robert Town quote that kind of gives some insights into his thinking when he wrote this screenplay. But the quote is, there are some crimes for which you get punished and there are some crimes that our society isn't equipped to punish. So we reward the criminals. So there's really nothing to do but put their names on plaques and make them pillars of the community. And that, and that kind of is echoed in how the, the film is bookended with these two phony Warren Commission type uh, whitewashes, you know, of the of the crimes. And of course, the criminals are, are all buildings are named after them and so on. Um, one of the co-writers, Lorenzo Simple Jr., he left Yale also um, to, to be an ambulance driver for the Free French Forces in North Africa. This already sounds like intelligence work, but if it wasn't obvious already, he's later drafted into the army as an intelligence officer in World War II. He's also the writer of Three Days of the Condor and, and many other you know, in intelligence, uh, you know, related scripts. So, I mean, that's the background of some of the people making the movie. So you basically, um, right, you have the basically like some of the greatest intel, paranoid, um, you know, espionage type writers coming together to write the movie, right? Yeah, and I was just listening to a talk by John Borston, who's an assistant director and work with, uh, is it, I always miss, is it Pakula, Pakula, Pakula throughout his career? And uh, yeah, he said that Peckley, he was the guy who was like totally fascinated by paranoia and he was seeking out, you know, kind of paranoia and he loved to manipulate the audiences with, um, with paranoia. The, the, like the, the Parallax Corporation, I mean, it's based on partially on the Permindex. Right? And I like, the, I like your analysis. I have the same, it's very insightful, very astute about the Parallax because Parallax is this idea too that if you change position, everything looks different. Um, you know, but it's, a, it's, that's, that's definitely, I think, an idea in the, in the, um, in the title, but it comes from Permindex Corporation, which Jim Garrison, you know, pointed up as a CIA front involved in the Kennedy assassination and Clay Shaw, people have seen the JFK movie, they know what I'm talking about. You know, Clay Shaw was on the board of the company and one of its subsidiaries. So, I mean, Garrison basically accused him of being what, um, what the Parallax Corporation is. I mean, it's also based on right, the way- Go look at the Parallax Corporation, sorry to interrupt, but they had other big players, big time Zionists and other guys who were big time corporate people on the board with Shaw. So it was, yeah, it was something else. Yeah, you know, thanks. Um, the other uh, the other inspiration for this screenplay particularly was the, the wave of journalists that were being killed in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, I mean, people who studied the case know that just the scores of people, um, government officials, witnesses, and so forth that are killed. But there's a lot of journalists get killed as well. And that Lee Lee Carter character who plays Beatty's ex is based partly on Dorothy Kilgallen, 
um, uh, who was a Warren Commission skeptic and the only journalist to interview Jack Ruby. I understand she interviewed him for several hours or a few hours at his defense table um, and was making noise like she was going to expose a conspiracy. And then she supposedly dies as a result of alcohol um, and barbiturates. I did a full show on her. You can read about her whole story. She's found in a weird room that she usually didn't stay in, like all kinds of strange stuff. Well, it reminded me too of the 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 uh, Jimi Hendrix thing too, where you know even his former manager supposedly told the journalist before he died in a plane crash that he just forced barbiturates and alcohol down his throat. So it sounds like in that era that was the way they were suiciding people. Yeah, yeah I heard that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, yeah, go ahead, Thomas. I was just going to say, like, uh, you know, one other note about, um, you know, about the credits for this movie is that, you know, I know it went through, you know, a, a few different processes in terms of, you know, in terms of the writing and rewriting of the screenplay and that, uh, you know, even like Warren Beatty was even like kind of involved with doing some of like last minute uh, rewrites. So, but still, at least in one of the phases, this guy, David Geiler, uh, was involved with screenwriting it and I, I just noticed when I when I saw that when I was researching the movie that he had come up in my notes before uh, you know because uh, you know Brett and I for the show had done a David Fincher series recently and uh, Alien 3 he was one of the writers on there um, and you know he was also I think uh, had a story credit for Aliens and was a producer for Alien and uh, you know the Alien series with its kind of like um, uh, you know with you know a lot of its kind of H.R. Giger themes are very very it's very very you know, suspicious and very very troubling and so and I just noted that he was on there that uh, that right before Parallax View, his uh, screenwriting credit was uh, Myra Breckenridge, uh, the, you know, the very transgressive, you know, Gore Vidal, uh, you know, film. So just to, just, yeah. Um, but so just a couple of those notes there. But I mean, uh, the other really thing, big thing that stands out to me about this movie, and I, I mean, I, it's fantastic. If people are interested in conspiracies, parapolitics, Kennedy assassination stuff, absolutely watch it. Just the way it's shot and captures this feeling of paranoia. Um, it's done so well. And I always like when for the show, we get to watch older movies because it's the quality of filmmaking compared to most of what we have to watch in terms of recent stuff. I mean, it's really night and day. Um, but the fact that Alan Pacula, a couple years after this, uh, does all the president's men uh, just, you know, it's a little bit odd to me just because, you know, this is a very kind of black pill movie, uh, you know, in terms of just the feeling that you're supposed to be left with. I think Alan Pacula says parallax view is my fear and all the president's men is my hope. Uh, you know, and he says with parallax view, he wants to like leave you a little bit uh, nervous or paranoid about the person sitting next to you when you're done with this. So this real deep feeling of paranoia from this national tragedy, from the hopelessness, from the symmetry of the beginning and ending. And then he goes on to do basically, you know, the quintessential like blue pill journalism movie with all the president's men that is just, you know, enthusiastically giving you just like the most just mainstream normie establishment version of the Watergate events as possible. Right. So I don't know what's going on there. If there's some kind of like juxtaposition between kind of black pill programming and blue pill programming um, and how these things kind of offset each other. But yeah, what, what do you think about that? It is interesting. I mean, all the presidents met, people have disputed how, like, uh, how real that story is. But I think um, these guys, I, I, I still think that Parallax View stands the test of time. I think that uh, it's still a great film. It's very few people, at least before this kind of research community kind of grew within the last 10 years, referenced it. But I think it still captures that era and the paranoia and the distrust. And I mean, the, the Kennedy assassination, there were so many people who died around there. It wasn't just jur journalists, but 
people who saw too much. There were all kinds of mysterious deaths. There were like 50 or 100 people who died before their time, cops, <clears throat> things like that. So I think that the paranoia was justified. Right, right. Yeah, I think that there's, um, yeah, there, well, obviously, yeah, this is just an excellent, excellent piece of filmmaking. And um, I, and like I said, I recommend that people watch it. I think that the, uh, when the, the paranoia theme can be kind of weaponized when it's done in this kind of like generic sense that leaves people with this just sense of just shadowy powers that there's like, that there's literally no way to fight against. I mean, I think like, you know, a lot of the stuff about Pacula, all presidents men aside, um, you know, I, I think he was trying to, you know, you know, to get the word out with this. I mean, it just uh, the way that you, know, you mentioned the, you know, he's uh, the the line about um, about the you know the independence, you know, the guy who gets assassinated at the beginning, right. and the lines about, you know, he's like the perfect father, the perfect husband, he's the perfect statesman, like all these things, just capturing the absolute sense of shock, of tragedy, of like you know, uh, of mysterious forces, you know, just taking out this kind of beacon of hope. I mean, one thing that makes me think of is, uh, you know, you you document in, in Prophet of evil uh the evidence for ritualism around 9-11 do you see in addition to kind of like the practical aspects of the objectives for the kennedy assassination in terms of you know the goals of furthering the war machine and all of that uh do you see kind of a ritual aspect to you know to you know to the murder of of jfk people have talked about it i've heard of the king kill 33 all that stuff the dates but not to, to me i wasn't that overt you know i've heard of people saying that three assassins were the you know jews uh, what is it j-e-w-e-s the three wise men from the um, masons i've heard that so uh, i don't know I, I don't know that much about the jfk i'm i'm almost positive that the ritualized elements of 9-11 are all intentional i mean i think that the planners were high level cultists and they knew what they were doing and they were trying to i mean i think that that's when you do these rituals, you do it for power. You have to get all the pieces right together in the right spot. Numerology, moon, star, sun, all that stuff. So um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think the JFK has that element of ritual murder to it? You know, I, I don't have uh, conclusive thoughts about that. I mean, one thing that really um, kind of uh, that gets me suspicious is, you know, with uh, with regard to the the uh, you know just the 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 small amount of people that it takes to get from Alan Dulles to Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, you kind of connect him through chain of associations in like five, six people. Uh, when you go from, you know, the person that Oswald's uh, wife was living with at the time of the assassination to, Pain. Pain. yep. To pain, uh, you know, that, um, that uh, it was uh, Ruth Payne's um, um, uh, mother-in-law, her husband's mother, uh, Ruth, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ruth Forbes uh, Payne, who married this guy, Arthur Young, um, who uh, the, the, was the two of them who get involved with Puharich and Council of Nine Seances and members of the Andrea Puharich, uh, you know, Foundation, Roundtable Foundation. And I think according to Lavenda and some other sources present at the original seance of the Council of Nine, then Ruth Forbes Payne uh, is a close associate of Mary Bancroft, Alan Dulles's mistress and Alan Dulles, Mary Bancroft, Ruth Forbes Payne, all Carl Jung associates. Um, so the fact that you have, uh, you know, like for one thing, yeah, the, the Dulles to, to Oswald within like five, you know, five, six people, really weird on its own. The fact that a couple of those links are, uh, are associates of Puharich, the guy, you know, who starts the Council of Nine cult, like that's, is either either there's something going on there on you know the occult level with the influence of the council nine of all that or it's an extremely creepy coincidence yeah yeah i mean it's unbelievable and she ruth Payne was like the center of everything 
she was the one handling Marina. She found like she was the one who made the testament at the uh, Warren Commission that the she saw uh, him with the rifle. She found the letter. She was the one who implicated him in the shooting of the five-star general or whatever. Like she was all over. She was yeah, she's amazing. If you took Ruth Payne and put her back in the 17th century in New England and put her in like a Puritan's outfit, she would fit right in, man. She's from that kind of background, that uh, that early American uh, thing, just like a lot of the people who were surrounding the Warren Commission and uh, Dulles Brothers and stuff like that. We'll see The Assassination and Miss Payne by Max Good. Good documentary, and it shows uh, Ruth Payne drive from the Forbes Island, I think outside of Connecticut. She drives south, stops in Louisiana, picks up, I think she picks up Marina and uh, Oswald or one of them and then drives them to Dallas. And she was a wealthy, she had like a, she had like this uh, trust fund, but she, she was staying at a very humble, uh, maybe lower middle class house in South Irving at that time, like really kind of beneath her. So she was much more sophisticated. And she was also a psychologist, very interesting. It is interesting. There's kind of like an ethnic element to my, I found it's very vague, but it's kind of an ethnic element for people who's to go with the official story and the people who think it's baloney. The people who think it's baloney are like a lot of Italians, Jews, and Irish people. And then the people who say, oh yeah, no, no, no. Uh, you know, Oswald did it, like almost all wasps. It's kind of funny. Listen, don't they make a point in The Good Shepherd about the sort of like the intelligence community being specifically sort of an Anglo ethnic, you know, they, that line about Italians have families and black people have music or something. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> they have the country. That I think that's a famous line from Damon. Yeah, it's we have this country, right? You have this, you got that. What do you have when they have the country? So I think that that's, that, that's a truism. I think that film was very straightforward about the intel, skull and bone, stuff like that. Yeah, but it contains a lot of misdirection. I think I'm going to argue that Parallax View does too. But I mean, I think like, for example, when they, yeah, they give you a limited hangout about MK Ultra and they show you the LSD stuff, but they put it in the a context of an interrogation, which is a cover story that it was all about, like a tr like searching for a truth serum and so forth. Whereas, you know, even now, whatever History Channel stuff will, will admit that it was a program about mind control, which goes back to cybernetics research and stuff. So, I mean, that film, yeah, it has limited hangouts and it reveals a lot of stuff and, in kind of like shocking amounts of detail, the skull and bones, Yale connection to the CIA and stuff, but in other things it it misdirects people. And I, I think in some ways, if you, I mean, I don't know if you've, I mean, William, I don't know if you saw the movie Executive Action, which is I think also 73 earlier in the year, it was another Kennedy assassination movie. Um, Sounds familiar, is that the Peckinpah one? No, it's not Peckinpah, I, I, it's in a more obscure director. It does have, I think, yeah, Maybe Burt Lancaster's in it. Um, but it, it was not as good of a movie, but it was, I mean, like Roger Ebert mentions it in his review of Parallax View, so it was on people's minds a bit. And that movie is also like trying to, like, it, it's trying to almost exonerate the CIA and the government by like having this sort of specter-like organization that just hijacked them for this purpose. And so Parallax View is kind of going along the same, the same lines in a way of like, uh, divorcing the conspiracy from the agencies of the government. 
Um, you know, um, and I mean, Alex Cox, who does some really great commentary on this, the, the director, Alex Cox points out that, you know, parallax is kind of acceptable because it's, because it's fictional the same way that, uh, um, the same way that executive action, you know, remains in, in a way in the realm of fiction. Whereas like this movie, the Matei affair that Paramount still refuses to, to release is like, gives you very literal details of a, of a conspiracy. But also when you look at it in the broader arc of what pa uh, 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 is doing in his paranoid political paranoid trilogy, he goes from this kind of, yeah, like, like downer seventies black pill, you know, there's no way out. They, they've got us in their web to, oh, well, you know, the good guys win. It's all going to get exposed in um, all the president's men. And by the way, the novel Parallax View, I, I haven't read it, but I was looking at some summaries online. Apparently it actually kind of ends with more of a good guys win. Some cop like snuffs out that the, the Warren Beatty analog was actually, you know, killed as by an assassin. And so something, you know, the public will figure out something's wrong. Um, but people get blackpilled by this movie. It's all hopeless. There's something sort of uh, above the government, specter type organization, you know, and then you go to all the president, well, everything's going to be okay. So I don't know. I have a certain suspicion about, about the agenda going on with these conspiracy moves. How much is it limited hangout? How much is it a genuine, um, uh, uh, how much is it like there's a genuine ideological message? I think there's something there because I mean, like people like Warren Beatty and stuff, I mean, they, um, some of these people really were trying to expose stuff about the Kennedy assassination, but they have their own susness. You know, they have, uh, they have, I mean, with Beatty, I mean, I, you know, this can go into the Manson stuff in Cielo Drive. I mean, there's multiple sources right. that have him on camera and pornography. And so, so he's entangled in some stuff, but, you know, he's not without agency. But so all of this stuff is, it gets very difficult to, to pull it all apart. I mean, I know Ken, Ken Oglesby has this paradigm of the, which is, which is, um, contestable, you know, like the Yankees versus the cowboy sort of thing. So in that version, you know, the ruling elites who are sort of above our knowledge are are themselves engaging in this in this struggle. And uh, yeah, some of some of the people that want to expose the Kennedy assassination also want to cover up um, some aspects of it at the same time. So I think this movie is very much made like in that milieu, and I think we should be really suspicious of of what what. Um, of what it's trying to make us think about conspiracy. Well, I think you should be suspicious, but I mean, even aside, like if you didn't know this was about the Kennedy assassination, it can apply to so many other stories, just taking this whole uh, research, going into these darker things, these front companies, the behavioral modification that was taking place at that time, looking for the right guy, these personality tests that are around, even in Scientology, the get into your CIA, exam it's all in it's all integrated in there so i think that even a, even outside of like the jfk like it's not a direct you know uh expose of what happened to jfk but i think it's within the larger context of american parapolitics which really is the real politics of the post-war world i think it i think it provides people with a template and insight into the mechanics of how some of these assassinations take place behind the scenes, putting people in the place at the right time. Like even the RFK assassination was 68. Like there were probably, I talked to Lisa Peace, there were probably three or four other people in that were there that were that were patsies. And the one the the, what, the route out 
Sir Hand, Sir Hand was that Patsy, and there might have been two other groups. And go back and look at uh, GFK. I think that it was Dick Russell talked about this unknown guy that nobody even really talked about, Castillo, he had a Latin last name, who was going to be the Patsy in Chicago. So these people are putting these people in place, just like Beatty. Probably didn't know these guys that, you know. Yeah, well, they had another... They had another Manchurian candidate in Chicago to kill JFK. I mean, that came up in the 90s when they, they uh, Congress subpoenaed the Secret Service records of people who made threats, and it appeared there was very much another Oswald that was ready to go in Chicago. Yes. I think that's one, one of them. I forgot his name. I thought it was a Lat Latino last name. But I think so. I think that I think the parallax view is worthwhile reading outside of the, you know, outside of specific assassination context because the 60s were a horror show of assassinations. I mean, I just keep going through JFK, RFK, Mar Marilyn Monroe, uh, Kilgallen, um, Thomas Merton, uh, MLK and his brother. His brother suspiciously died in a pool, like an SFK type death. I mean, the list is just off the charts. And you talk about all the people around Johnson, his sister. It was just, a, it was a slaughterhouse, man, in domestically. So. I so, think that within the context of that post sixties was was parallax view was what seventy one no seventy three seventy three so I think that it was worthwhile I think that I think they captured that kind of hopeless crazy deaths and that even I mean some of these strange deaths are happening today too I mean we can do a whole show on Anthony Bourdain you know, so. yes yes well and I, I I agree I mean I think it's a I think it very much is. Uh, uh, positive in that sense and, and and kind of getting people jarred out of their epistemological you know slumbers and thinking about these things you you alluded to the mind control um, themes in the film which is something we analyze a lot in the show but yeah what are your thoughts on what's called the test sequence that clockwork orange style uh, personality assessment programming um, uh, scene it's like the Ludovic method or whatever was Alex DeLarge clockwork orange cold themes there too I in the triangle but I think that they did a good job. I think they did a good job of kind of uh, seeing what it would be like to kind of test somebody. It definitely had that clockwork orange, but more modern version. But um, I do, I think that it was interesting. Anyway, yeah. I think Parallax View stands the test of time. Some of those other kind of um, films from those things remain dated or not as good, but um, still interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, so the, the test sequence is one of those things that makes me really uh, suspicious of a film like this, you know, because one of the things I explore is how, you know, film is itself used as a weapon of psychological warfare. I was just watching a movie last night called Anguish, which is like literally trying to hypnotize the audience and admits to doing so. And, you know, so it's also, you become, you know, you're, you're identified with Warren Beatty and you're undergoing whatever this experience is. This, uh, the, the Borston, this guy, John Borston, the um, assistant director that I mentioned you'd work with, Bakula uh, throughout his career said that the joke quote uh, in this sequence is that um, Beatty actually passes the, the whatever the test is, the psychopath test or whatever it is, because of his own sort of single-minded ruthlessness in pursuit of the truth is kind of what they're looking for, um, you know, in, in a way. I mean, so that's, that's kind of what he thought was the joke of it. I mean, one of the features I think is notable here, people have to watch it for themselves, we won't describe it, but there's this uh, sort of like um, uh, like rising crescendo of images that sort of associate psychopathy and godhood 
um, which, you know, which is just another instantiation of this dark self archetype that we analyze so much in the Joker episode and um, the kind of divinized uh, psychopath uh, figure. It was uh, really, really, but that's, I mean, that's kind of what my read of it was. I don't know what yours was, Thomas. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, and more or less the same thing. I mean, I, the, I mean, the sequence is so well done, and it's one of the. It basically sums up my mixture of slight suspicion with admiration for the movie in terms of, um, yeah, 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 in terms of shining a light on these techniques, but then directly, yeah, directly subjecting the audience, uh, you know, the audience to it, and uh, you know, of course, seeing like you know, figure like uh, like Thor, you know, the from the comics is you know really stood out to me since I'm so interested in you know um, you know superhero mythology as you know a vector of very malicious superhumanism into culture and all of that. Um, uh, one other thing, just like about the movie that I'll say that I really like is the uh, you know the beginning and ending in terms of the pronouncements about uh, you know the the irresponsible conspiracy theorists and all of that uh, you know right. for this, you know kind of the Illuminati suits here the corporate suits there and just you know uh, it's very cathartic to kind of you know to to kind of see that and just with the feeling when you do this kind of research of just you know the the, the absolute denial of so many obvious realities you know about uh, you know about these things so the movie opening with the really annoying psychologization of the uh, wanted fame and all of that these things that they try to stick on oswald and these people that make no sense and then we see the entire movie see the patsy process and all of that and then get to the end and they're like there once again no evidence even though this won't stop the irresponsible conspiracy theorists theorists who you know it's implied just want to thrill and all of that so just the, the 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 fact that the movie shows you what's really going on and then shows you the symmetry of how that will just be relentlessly denied no matter what you know by you know by mainstream sources i thought that was i thought it was very compelling yeah it's good i mean and the interesting thing is if you're in la you can go see where the parallax corporation is it's at 600 south commonwealth avenue and it's a it's a giant monolith oh wow always a monolith yeah. right and i was just about to say uh that uh, yeah that's uh, that's the time that we had asked for and we were, are very yeah. grateful for it uh i think we covered so much um in, you know in this episode uh, but so just as a, you know, as a, as a final question, uh, just uh, we covered so much dark stuff and your work just uh, is, you know, just deals with so many sinister, horrific, violent cases. You know, uh, Brett and I are both Eastern Orthodox Christians. We know you're a Christian as well. And so when you're looking into the face of the demonic, the satanic in terms of crime, politics and all that, do you have any message of hope for anyone who's listened to this two and a half hours and is maybe feeling a little bit hopeless or black pilled right now? Well, there is hope. I'm fully Christian. I believe that we're not just in a material world. So you want to really stay. I mean, I think that you're seeing events come true that are in the book of Revelation, slowly coming into this new world order, which is really a satanic world order. So you really want to protect yourself physically and spiritually. My protection is Jesus Christ. I'm totally a Christian, 100%. I'm actually a Christian totalist, uh, not really like a fundamentalist. So I have a Christian worldview. I do believe in an afterlife. So I, I think that knowing these dark things is not for everybody. I don't think that everybody should study them, but it's good to know so you can see where you are in the culture. Now the culture's changing and what kind of messages are being, being put out there so you can protect yourself and your family. So I, I don't really like to do this where I felt called to do the work because at that time, nobody else was doing it. Maybe more people are doing it right now, but I think the Christian church in general, 
should have should have been more focused on these things and that i think that's a real problem as well so i'm trying to do my part i'm trying to you know fight the good fight but uh, yeah it, it's dark but i think there's a light i mean I, it sustains me the light of christ sustains me and it's brought me through many troubles many firewalls as well so uh have hope in the grace of god and, and through jesus christ and i think that is a perfect note to end on William Ramsey, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. I hope we can talk again. We've got a lot more that we can go through, um, but uh, but we really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thank, thanks, thank William. You. Yeah, we're really honored that you came on. All right. Take care. Please visit WilliamRamseyInvestigates.com to check out William's books, documentaries, and blog posts. And for more of the PSYOP, follow us on Twitter at CinemaPsyop and subscribe at Patreon.com slash PsyopCinema. Until next time, remember, don't be afraid.